This episode contains discussions of objectification, misogyny, self-harm, animal harm, abuse, and a few spoilers. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome to the World Domination Committee, a monthly podcast where I discuss villains from media and history, what makes a good villain, and what makes a bad villain better. I'm your host, Nav, and I'm the only fan you can have. And I'm your co-host, Xzala, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow's heroine, or anti-heroine, not to be confused with heroine, that was from episode 12. And I'm your other co-host. Just hide up over here, just hanging out. Trinzala, who's been an old man basically whinging at clouds. Yes, today we are joining Nav, the only fan. The only one. Am I the only one? You have like four subscribers, right? I think so, something like that, four or five, but you're the only one who actually talks to us. So that's why we are joining you today. Well, Obviously, Nav gives feedback on every episode, which is highly appreciated. Very but much so. also to kind of introduce, Nav and I used to work together at a film production company, kind of like two of the characters that we're going to be covering on today's episode, but way less creepy and manipulative, because that's what directors and supervisors are for. That's right. I guess you would manipulate us with your notes yes that's true or the production schedule like i need 15 shots by the end of the week and if you don't give them to me your head's on the chopping block yeah and then we have to request ot from you it's like can i work please can i get more money if you ask nicely enough (laughs) well now do you have any introductions you want to make on your behest as our only fan as our host today um not really i've known you guys for like four years now and like i was really excited about when you started this podcast i was like when am i gonna be a guest on it (laughs) like secretly wishing for a while but yeah thank you for having me well it's awesome to have you on thank you thank you all right i guess before we get into the crux of today's episode do you have any live feedback for us about episode 12 the sackler family and the opioid epidemic yeah, I brought this 12-page essay that I'm going to read from it. All right, buckle up, everyone. Let's go. Let's go. There's <laughs> uh, actually just a few points. Um, I was just like, I don't know that much about this part of history or like what the Sacklers were doing and all that stuff. So I just felt like there was a tie with the opium wars and the crack epidemic in the U.S. And that sort of made me think that those things were their mentors. Oh, that's a fair point. I think mm-hmm. Trin mentioned like a third opium war at one point, mm-hmm. but I think we completely overlooked the crack epidemic and the war on drugs that like initially was happening. It gave kind of a like a pattern or a precedent of like how you would do like such a like an outbreak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I guess like there was a, this is more like a general editing note and not really based on the content. 
the own message, the 911 call that you played in the middle had no trigger warning. And it was, I was like completely out of the blue and I was like doing chores or something. And this started happening suddenly. Oh, I was like, oh shit. That definitely real. No. <laughs> like give someone a tiny existential crisis while they're driving on the road. That's a fair point. So I guess uh, a trigger warning for an actual 911 call would have been warranted at the beginning or like before the actual 911 call was played. Yeah, before the actual one, like a second one. I'm pretty sure we said like, all right, we have an actual 911 call from um, like a recording of it, but mm. maybe like saying, oh, alert, like do not freak out or something like yeah. be warned. It's it's harsh. Like this is where it gets real. Yeah, yeah definitely. But it was a really good episode. I enjoyed it. Well, thanks. All right, moving on. We are on episode 13, Lucky 13. Um, I guess, let's see. Maybe we should cover a little bit about who we're talking about today and then how we discovered them? Sounds like a plan. All right. So we're discussing today... Yamasaki Asami. A seemingly perfect girl and former ballerina who is part of an audition. She auditions for a role in a film that is intended to never happen. And it's intended to never happen because it's basically weird old school Tinder before Tinder existed. But after which she goes on a date with a guy, she reveals her true colors and falls for one of the producers but in the most twisted kind of way. Yeah, so today we're talking about the movie Audition, specifically Asami. Now, initially, I discovered this film looking for movies one night, and I saw a trailer in which a guy's drinking a dog bowl of vomit, and I was like, oh, this is going to make some everyday wholesome evening content, and was interested in watching it just based off of that. And I think I dragged you along the journey, Trin. <laughs> so we watched the movie yes. at the same time, looking for fucked up movies to watch. I think I was interested in it because uh, I was diving into Japanese movies and I discovered Battle Royale and like a bunch of anime. So you're getting cultured? Yeah. Also, I think Tarantino mentioned in an interview that it was one of his favorite movies. For me, it's one of the few horror movies that really creeped me out. The other one being Exorcist, but I was a teenager. Oh, really? Yeah, I was a teenager back then, so... I think Audition, it feels more, like, psychologically fucked up, whereas Exorcist is just very, like, over-the-top, you know, ghosty, scary demon stuff. Right. A lot of supernatural, kind of, like, ooh, demon. It's interesting that Tarantino had it, like, mentioned, but I guess maybe he drew some inspiration off of, like, the, the last half of this film. Yeah, strong female character. And gore. Yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> we'll get there. A lot of gore, and also I feel like the way Tarantino ramps up his action and violence, mm. like very slow burn in the beginning, long conversations, and then suddenly it goes up to like 20. Wow. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, today's sources include Audition, the 1997 novel by Ryu Murakami. Audition, the 1999 horror movie by Takashi Miike. We also have some quotes from Ryu Murakami, Audition by Pop Culture Death Drive. And I listened to some podcasts. Uh, one was called Intro to Takashi Mige by Agitator. And there was another one, Unpleasant Movies Podcast. 
That's right up my alley. <laughs> Those will be linked in the doobly-doo for anyone wishing to listen to them as well. And before we move on, I just want to shout out Takashi Miike as a filmmaker. I think he's really, really good. A lot of his movies are like very different from what we're used to in, in like a Western audience. He's done like Kurosawa style 13 Assassins, which is a bit like Western or like Seven Samurai style of movie. Mm. And he did like Blade of the Immortal, which was his hundredth movie. And there's a fight in the beginning, which has a hundred samurais <laughs> that the main character kills. There's a way to commemorate your filmography. Yeah, exactly. And there's one called Ichi the Killer that's bananas, like total bananas. And he's done a bunch of like anime adaptations of, uh, movie adaptations of anime and kids movies, family movies, just like really, really prolific. And in, in the year that Audition was released, he was working on seven other projects. Wow. It's a wonder, like, he didn't burn out amidst that. Yeah. I know it's hard just juggling, like, making a comic, working, and doing a podcast, so, like, extra stuff on top of that. Multitasking ability, like, S-tier. Yeah. I mean, his his life is really interesting. I think if you're an aspiring filmmaker, just check out his biography. He did, like, work for Yakuza <laughs> or something. Like, I think the story or the myth goes... It, it's, it's in one of the podcasts I mentioned, like, to tell his uh, bio... Intro to Takashi Miike. I think, yeah, that's that's the one. Nice. Well, let's dive into the plot overview of Audition. Uh, I wanted to caveat really quickly that we're going to be kind of doing um, an atypical plot overview because we both read the book and watched the movie. So we're going to be discussing like the overall plot points and kind of interspersing where the book and the movie branch off and how they tie back together. So that's just a heads up. Spoilers for the book. And the movie, we're covering them at once. I would say it's about the same path, just like different scenery. Yeah, yeah. Well, the novel audition starts off with 42-year-old Shigaharu Aoyama basically sitting down at the table having a talk with his teenage son Shige, who basically tells him he needs to start dating again. Shige explicitly says, why don't you find yourself a new wife, Pops? And... It's very off the bat that we learn that Aoyama is a widower and his wife died seven years prior of some kind of cancer. We get a little bit more insight into this background from the movie. Yeah, the, the movie starts with uh, Ryoko on her deathbed. like She's dying of viral cancer. And we start off with, like the first shot is this gift that this kid is bringing to his mom and it says get well soon mom. It's like a care basket kind of thing. Yeah and he comes into the the ward and his mom has died and his dad looks at him with a smile or a reassuring kind of look. Yeah and I kind of liked how in the book this was a little bit more expanded upon because it wasn't nearly as like a, like a quick thing. It was a more drawn out and we really kind of see how uh, Ayama is really dependent upon his wife or like basically raising his kid and taking care of like kind of like household like needs and whatnot and he doesn't really know how to like necessarily handle his life uh without her so he goes to a psychiatrist who gets or a psychologist who recommends that he get closer to his son and that he needs to like do this crazy concert thing 
uh, with this German organist. I don't know if the psych explicitly said you need to do a crazy concert, but basically, like, guiding him to focus on something passionate and creative, I think. Yeah, to basically fulfill that need. So we can already kind of see in uh, Ayama his uh, kind of taste in the classical, more kind of traditional styles of uh, living a life. Or, you know, kind of like more of that upper echelon kind of taste, one could say. And I really like how they expanded upon that in the book. But I think the movie really handles that with uh, or with visuals and kind of condenses it very well. Yeah, it, it makes you more like thrust into the world in a way where you get visuals like pieces of the background. In the book, we also learn towards the beginning that Aoyama works at a film production company. I think we mentioned kind of something like that in our intro. Um, and he's pretty high up there as well. He is in a leadership role, respected by his colleagues, but they do see him affected by his grief. Yeah, he's done, he's done a bunch of popular presentations of the Bible. Jesus animated. <laughs> Jesus 1999. Also kind of hinted that he's been unfaithful to his wife. Like there's there's a moment that he says not to have regrets about going to a prostitute after doing the Jesus video for that. He's thought about his wife being out of the picture and he sort of shrugs it off as like every husband has done that. He's thought about his wife being out of the picture and he sort of shrugs it off as like every husband has done that. It's also kind of implied that he has had an affair with somebody in his workplace. At least in the movie, there's there's a few scenes that come off kind of give like the hints that there's something more going on there and also what's kind of interesting is that he kind of makes like excuses for himself being kind of like i'm just with these like women whatnot but like it's not romantic so you know nothing's going on at least in the book that's how he kind of portrays it like justifying that but i have a romantic relationship with my wife and so that's what's important i guess Kind of like you were mentioning now, like thinking, oh yeah, well every husband has fantasies about like having extramarital affair kind of thing. Or murdering their wife. <laughs> so the book, we cover some of this exposition, learning about who Aoyama is and like his backstory. And after Ryoko dies in the movie, it kind of flashes forward to seven years after the fact. Aoyama takes Shige to the beach and there's the scene of them fishing together and already off the bat we see this reinforcement of these ideals that Ayama kind of has where he equates women to fish kind of well he objectifies them rather but he says that you know that typical quote like oh fish in the sea he equates having a big catch to like finding a good woman so, already, objectification meter, tick one, women are fish. Yup, that's going to continue throughout this entire thing. Yes. And he sort of frames it as, like, a really romantic thing. He's teaching his son about this. You want to catch a good fish? Don't catch the tiny ones, like, wait for the big one. And after they have this fishing excursion, I, I believe the movie has a scene where they're eating dinner together, and the fish that they have caught is also subject to discussion. <laughs> Kind of, it's kind of weird. Yeah. They talk about like the fish being born male and then it turns female and then the dad goes like, what gender was this fish? And the son is like, didn't you not notice the ovaries? And the dad's like, oh, I don't know about those things. <laughs> I don't know how babies are made. I don't know. Fish, <laughs> reproductive organs, doesn't matter to me. I don't know like how he's gotten this far with so many things he doesn't know how to do. 
He doesn't like probably doesn't know how to cook that much. I bet he didn't even cook this fish. Because at this point in the movie that Shige brings up that he's concerned about his father, basically that dad, you need to find a new wife kind of deal at this dinner. Yeah, he's like, it's time for you to remarry. He's probably sick of all the fishing jokes he's trying to give him. Dad, I don't like going fishing with you. Stop equating women to fish. Don't equate me to a fish. I think in the book, they also have a few discussions. Like they're watching a football match and they're objectifying the women. It's like they're skinny or whatever. This one's fat. That one looks good. It's like pointing out the most basic things about people and being really blase and rude about it i guess yeah i think uh there's like a bar scene or something like that at some point and they're like judging like uh people and be like oh my gosh i can't believe they ordered that they must uh, mean they like live a poor life or like whatever like you know just kind of like boiling people down to like the very like basics and then judging them hardcore yeah it's in this moment that they also have a, yet another like objectification comparison. Uh, I believe it's that Ayoyama starts comparing these women to stag beetles, which essentially are like, uh, I, if I remember correctly, they're like a prized expensive kind of beetle that's very rare, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like an expensive gift, but they're like really hard to like find. Like, and so he's like, you have to find like a really expensive like gift item and then you have to make sure you capture it just right. Yeah. It's kind of a bizarre metaphor, but it seems, it seems bizarre, <laughs> but it works in the moment. Yeah. It also really unlocks like how Aoyama sees people in terms of like presenting them for class gains or, you know, just appearances in his efforts of like trying to find or of objectifying women. He's also like, he's kind of objectifying parts of his own life or like what the ideal life is when that came up in the book i was i was just thinking about dung beetles and this like <laughs> tiny little beetle rolling this ball of shit up a hill and then i guess he presents that shit to the female and then they mate if the shit is good enough <laughs> just a tiny can of spray paint he's like painting a gold <laughs> <laughs> i mean that would look like a fairer rusher ew <laughs> uh, yeah so while they're at this kind of like bar area, uh, uh, Aoyama's close friend and compatriot, Yoshikawa, basically concocts this crazy scheme to maybe perhaps get him a new wife. And instead of like doing it the normal way, like approaching at the bar like they already are, or like a more normal way, they decide that with their skills in the entertainment industry, they're going to put a call out on the radio for actors to be in a film. What's the film about? We have no fucking clue. They don't have any fucking clue. They <laughs> they just want it to uh, so that they can get like a bunch of girls that they can screen through um, immediately. And so that Aoyama can basically pick a new perfect wife out of the audition list to, I guess, pursue. And he's also kind of like looking for like someone almost like half his age as he like goes into the specifics of like almost describing exactly what he wants. And he's like, super super particular about it yeah at the bar they have this kind of disdain of the youth like looking at uh, how beetles and like western influence has this destroyed uh, japan's youth and ayoyama is like i want someone young but also they should have qualities like she should be able to play the piano she should be uh, have some sort of skill she should be cultured 
Yeah. But also like 50s housewife, but modern and young and perky boobs and <laughs> able to take care of the house, but also look at his arm candy. Yeah, and also fuck him and then take care of his kid. Yep. It's basically like confidence comes from decent skills. Having no confidence makes you rely on someone else, I guess. And he's also kind of going about it in like this weird like Harvey Weinstein-esque like manner, like holding like this audition and whatnot. Being in the position of power as like the producer. And he's really going to like start leveraging that more and more as like, it goes on. I mean, to be fair, he kind of feels bad about it. Like, At first, yeah. yeah. And then he just rolls with it. I think in the in the movie they make him out to be a little bit more sympathetic as this like guy who's kind of dragging his feet, like, oh, my friend Yoshikawa did this idea. But throughout the book he always gave off like a kind of creepy vibe to me. Like even though he wasn't enthusiastic about it at first, he still agreed with it without like worrying about any of the moral implications. Yeah. Yoshikawa is a total sleazeball in this entire thing. I, I have no idea what to say. He's unapologetic about it. Well, I also think I am almost kind of a sleazeball. But... Yeah. Well, I mean, he's more of like the, okay, we'll do the bad idea, friend. <laughs> he's more subtle about it. But like when you see him look back and smile, especially in the movie, like he's got this sleazy kind of look. Mm -hmm. But Yoshikawa is like total sleaze lag. Like you can tell it from a mile away. When he's yeah. Walking. <laughs> He oozes that sleaziness. You're like, ah, I know to stay away from this guy. So after they concoct this scheme for their audition and discuss, like, what traits they're looking for, or Ayama's looking for, rather, in a woman, uh, in the workplace, in the movie, we see the first, like, scene with the secretary. Earlier we mentioned that it's hinted that he has an affair with her, and I think it's kind of implied in this scene where she's leaving work, I believe, and tells him very awkwardly, like, oh, I'm getting married soon. Oh, it's it's nobody that you would know. And just kind of, like, looks at him longingly, and he's like, okay, and goes in the elevator. And as it closes, he looks longingly, like, oh, maybe I missed this opportunity. I could have sealed the deal with my secretary. I feel like his uh, mindset there is like, oh, shit, I made a mistake. I should not have done that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I could have avoided this whole fake film production scheme and just settled down with this nice secretary that I know. I know how she works. Right, but then he's probably also like, hmm, but she's working this job. She's not as refined as I need my wife to be, as culture defined within my interest of weird German organist. Like, <laughs> better maybe he thinks because she is working, she won't have time to fulfill wifely duties or whatever. So after interacting with Yoshikawa and his old secretary, Aoyama decides, okay, I'm going to go with this production scheme. So he and Yoshikawa choose radio as the medium to advertise for their new show called Tomorrow's Heroine. Because they think if we put this advertisement out on radio, we're not going to get any basic bitches to apply because only the perfect hot 24-year-old housewife that has time to listen to radio will be the one that hears it and wants to apply. Yeah, they also specifically aim for the cheaper time slot at like 1 or 2 p.m., like when like most people are working. So not, not only can they pay less money for the ad, but they can also target the specific people trying to hear it. And they're cheap fucking bastards, as always. And they even like kind of like, okay, like when they finally get applicants, they're even going to be like, mm, I don't know, maybe she uh, demands too much money from the household. And it's like, really? Really? 
I could see them also trying to make this entire production as a tax write-off, but that's maybe a little bit too too real. Hashtag too real. <laughs> I don't know if Japan has tax write-offs. Oh, fair enough. We'll have to check this. <laughs> <laughs> You'll receive an email from me. <laughs> yes, you can let us know in next feedback if we were correct or not. Now... Aoyama agrees to putting this radio ad out and producing it, but he does have the stipulation. I think we already kind of discussed they have to be classically trained in something like arts or ballet because it builds character. So I don't think they explicitly state this in the radio advert, but that's one of the criteria they're going to be flipping through for the applicants. Yeah. And this ties into their phony film anyway. Yeah. So because of this desire, they kind of make the basic outline or idea of the film about a former like a former ballerina in order to kind of accommodate the type of girl he's looking for to apply so obviously old ballerinas like actors someone with a theatrical background you never want someone with theatrical background they're way too dramatic (laughs) oh my (laughs) oh dear the book talks about the audition idea a lot more than the movie yeah it's like they meet up and discuss it frequently trying to work out the kinks with it yeah like the movie just got straight to yoshikawa presenting the list of candidates to aoyama and he's like this is only 10 out of 1000 applicants they're all attractive they're smart they're well-bred obedient well-trained i hate that term well-bred i just find it so like disgusting yeah like free roaming chickens (laughs) he's basically like am i going to marry the the main actor of this movie but Yoshikawa is like, no, you're not going to marry the main actor. Those people are unhappy. I mean, he's not wrong about that. And it's also the fact of like, a, oh, well, if she's too good, then she just like can leave you at any time. You need one that's just slightly with, within your zone that you can like keep, you know, and that basically will be a stag beetle that can't get away. So that's their plan. They're auditioning people. They're, he's not actually going to marry the top pick of the litter i guess and also that way i guess the film can progress without seeming sus as hell Mm, still still pretty (laughs) sus now this is where i think one of the more notable things about the movie that the book doesn't have as much the book is a lot more cut and dry in terms of chronology but with the movie there's a lot of ominous editing tricks and funky chronology that add to this kind of feeling of mistrust after they are plotting this audition we see Ayoyama sitting in his car in traffic and rain is coming down and it's kind of like chill and dreary but we hear the ad tomorrow's heroine play and then immediately cut to something like seemingly off bat yeah it's like a shot of a little girl in a room it's like a very sparse room not a lot of furniture there's like a telephone or a radio in the room that she's listening to it's not like a teenager or something like that. it's more like a 80 year old girl or something like that and i feel like this is the first Im- instance of either him imagining a little girl or it's like in my mind i see it as like a demonic manifestation of this beast being born because the ad is out there yeah i mean it could also be flashbacks or like maybe an imagining of somebody who's actually listening to it. It's very unclear what this shot is there for, for Ayoyama at least, but it it's kind of ominous in a way. And there's also this like really jarring cut of, like he turns on the ad, it starts playing, and then there's this really jarring cut where we're outside the car, 
and it's just the sound of the rain and we don't hear Ayoyama or the radio ad anymore and then we cut back to the car and it resumes. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like almost like the crossover of where are like the two most important characters in the story kind of first interact in a way. Like kind of like the subconsciously. Little, yeah, subconsciously. They kinda of like, oh, linked up. They're psychically connected. <laughs> yeah. I, f- I felt like that psychic thing more in like my third and fourth viewing of this movie. Yeah. Kind of witchy vibes. Yeah. Almost like um Suspiria with the ballerinas. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty interesting in the book, like you said, they kind of go into pretty like in depth into what the like the audition process is and whatnot but it's also kind of interesting because they explore this both in the movie very briefly but they go way into it in the book but it's like ayama basically like looking through all of these headshots of screening, yeah yeah pre-screening them like literally like swiping left instead of like on a digital screen with like just actual paper because you know like Faxed headshots or something, resumes. Files of a thousand Tinder 1999 candidates that he's got to swipe on. Yeah, and then he comes across, like, one candidate, and he's just, like, instantly, like, enamored. Like, he's like, oh, like, everything about this girl, like, I like it, whatnot, you know, and she has, like, kind of, like, a tragic backstory, and he's like, oh, no. Yeah, because they submitted essays along with their resumes and headshots. Yeah, to kind of, I guess, get, like, get to know more about them, or maybe just kind of like see if they have like creative skills but he basically finds out of like all of these like applicants that are really like high level like actors ballerinas and whatnot he finds one he's like i'm gonna choose this one and then like his friend yashka was like bruh bruh you need to see the applicants he's like "Mm, do i do i really though it feels a little bit more happenstance in the movie Ayama's working from home the day that he's supposed to be going through these applications, swiping on those resumes, and at first he looks at a photograph of his wife that's on the desk, and I think Matthew mentioned earlier with his like unfaithful ideals, he feels guilt at first, but then he literally turns the picture of his wife away from the stack of auditions <laughs> while reading or resumes while reading them. Yeah, and then he just starts doing it like do 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 do. This is fine. My wife doesn't see me. Yeah. I think he receives a call from Yoshikawa at this point also. And he's like really excited about it. And he tells Yoshikawa like it's buying, it's like buying my first car. Oh, another objectification instance. So we have fish, we have beetles, now we have car. Yay. <laughs> Gotta collect them all. <laughs> Yoshikawa is like, I don't trust the pictures. The essay is more useful. He's also like, I think he mentioned, uh, and I noticed this in like my fourth viewing or something. He mentions like, don't mistake your wife for a car, which is like something I remember from college. There was this book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. So it's a very famous book that came out in like the 60s or something. And it's about this researcher, Oliver Sacks, and he does this, uh, he was cataloging a lot of mental patients, like people with neurological disorders. And there was this case of this person who couldn't distinguish between faces and objects. That's sad. Yeah, it's a thing called visual agnosia. And like, I didn't notice it at first, but immediately I was like, oh shit, this is talking about like faces and objects and like women 
as objects, wife and car. I'm not seeing them as any different. It's like there's something fucked up in Yoshikawa and Aoyama's brains or like anyone who just immediately objectifies people. Yeah. So after this conversation he's had with Yoshikawa over the phone, Shige comes in and interrupts Aoyama's work, making him spill coffee on this pile of resumes. And that's where where I was saying in the movie it's a lot more happenstance that he finds his new object of obsession, at least in his mind. This coffee spill lands on Asami's resume. He's like, oh shit, I gotta clean this up. But then he sees her picture and goes gaga over this. So it's a lot more accidental than in the book, I think. It ends with the same result. He reads about how she is formally trained in ballet, how she damaged her hips at 18, and basically, after losing this passion that she had, she felt it was accepting death, which he was kind of obsessed with that idea. Yeah, I think they mentioned that quite a lot later also, like the fact that she took it as accepting death, and maybe she's dead and she's back as a beast or a demon or something. Just just my theory. I think that ties in really well with the book, actually, because how most people describe Asami as, is as something kind of ethereal, like a ghost or smoke or something like that. And Aoyama also mentions a lot how he resonates with that. It was like accepting death. It was like accepting death. I think the book touches on that a lot better than the movie does, but I think you're, you're on to something. Yeah, very much so, especially when um, he's... Uh, Ayama's like, oh, it's like accepting death. Like, I just had to recently accept my wife's death. Like, we're on the same page. Like, we can be psychologically on the same wavelength. So it kind of makes him a little bit more sympathetic um, in, like, the book than it does in the movie. Because I guess the movie just doesn't have, like, as much time to express that missing sentiment for his wife besides maybe the picture from earlier yeah <laughs> which he just promptly turns away <laughs> exactly. no, i miss you so much i can't look at you bye <laughs> yeah while while he's looking at these pictures these resumes we get this first instance of i guess this is the second instance of the weird editing trick so we see this image of his wife in her hospital bed and her hair is almost like exactly like how Asami's picture is like split in the middle and she's looking straight at camera and that's how he imagines the image of his wife sitting in the hospital bed looking straight wacky. at camera. Sorry? That's not wacky at all. Yeah. Or like overriding her image with the new image of Asami. Yeah. I think in the book is also like he goes on a little bit about how she's very similar to his dead wife. Somebody mentions that Asami's picture looks a lot like Ryoko, and it's kind of uncanny. Yeah. Although, I don't think that he... I think he's already kind of set in his decision, even though the audition even ha like hasn't even happened yet. Yeah, the pre-screening. The pre-screening. But uh, I think he's still a bit embarrassed about like the whole situation, because he still doesn't necessarily uh, tell Shige right away. And we uh, get to like spend like a little bit more time with like Shige for like a little bit, uh, and he just seems kind of like a weird kid that's either like into dinosaurs or biology, depending on the medium. Yeah, the movie he is more into dinosaurs, like obsessed with dinosaurs, like dino figures everywhere, like big books of dinos. Like he has a, a girlfriend over or something. He's like, look at my dinosaur picture book. <laughs> She's like, oh yes, daddy, <laughs> I love your dinosaurs. <laughs> Tell me about that stegosaurus. 
This bronchosaurus has a really long neck. <laughs> oh, I just love to dig up some dinosaur bones. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Shige's got the riz with this girl. And I think there's a few, like, kind of weird offhanded comments between Ayoyama and Shige about, like, oh, like, not offhanded comments, but he kind of, like, winks at his son, like, oh, yeah, go get him, tiger. And and this is after, like, she learns that she ate uh, Ayama's dinner. She comes up to Ayama, oh, I'm so sorry, gomen nasai, I'll cook for you, I'll go to the kitchen and cook for you. Yeah, and she's, like, 13, 14 or something like that, and so it's kind of interesting to see this, like, standard, at least, like, we don't know really anything about this girl other than she's willing to, like, do stuff for Shige's dad, which is just kind of showing, like, that ingrained cultural, I guess, like, not necessarily subservience, but how that's, like, this a standard in a way. Yeah, he's, like, giving his son the thumbs up, like, this girl is good, you better stick with her. And it's, like, teaching the next generation on... Yeah, reinforcing those, like, toxic ideas. Yeah. This is kind of an aside, but we also learn that they have a dog. <laughs> uh, who's named Gangster in the book. You're Gangsta. But in the movie... They did him dirty and they just changed his name to Gang. Uh, it's the worst. They should have kept, like, full gangster. Full gangster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a G. Especially when the directors also, like, then work for the Yakuza. Oh, true, true. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why he had to change it. Could be. So, the audition finally begins. And Ayama's kind of feeling like, criminal or like a shady or like a kid who's like he is shady <laughs> he, uh, it, this is already super shady and like he kind of knows it and he feels like a kid that's seeing it like his christmas presents before christmas and like now it's about christmas and he knows what he's getting and he's super excited i would kind of imagine that's how he's feeling about now but this is like actually getting down to it and he can't wait to basically see asami in person that's what he's really after like during this audition what he's really nervous about of course he's on the naughty list <laughs> yes I for sure on the naughty list he shouldn't get any of his christmas presents um yoshikawa at this point reminds him like hey don't judge a book by its cover i know you've been looking through the resumes and the headshots and stuff but you know at least give all of these people auditioning a chance and ayoyama kind of begrudgingly agrees to this and essentially mopes his way through the auditions. Yeah, this section sort of has that America's Got Talent kind of vibe to it with all the girls coming in and doing their shenanigans like there's someone doing a Spanish dance and... Flamenco. Oh, flamenco. And there's like baton spinning. I think there's a, a brief intersection of like somebody just taking their clothes off. We see like a montage essentially of all of these interviews, like, okay, tell us about yourself, tell us about your sexual experiences, tell us about your trauma, show me what you got, walk around this chair. They're seeing all of these people, and the way that it is edited together in the movie feels very weird, but, like, at least when I was re-watching it, it felt kind of like uh, sensory overload, because there's just so many, and, like, the way that it's edited together it kind of flashes through, you hear so much noise, there's this very, like, high BPM music that's kind of irritating at the same time. Yeah. Throughout this audition process, like, the women are trying to engage with the men in charge, but all the men ask are, like, sex-related questions. I feel like that was what the movie gave off. Mm -hmm. I don't recall nearly as much of, like, the interview process from the book. 
yeah. interview process in the book, I believe, was also like kind of stressful and long. Um, but it was mostly just kind of him being like, no, not this person because da 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 reason. No, not this person because da 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 reason. Uh, and it was mostly just him whinging about waiting for Asami and arguing with Yoshikawa uh, like about like, you know, which person to pick. So the book, in a way, was like kind of more in their heads or more in um, Aoyama's head, at least in terms of like the process. But I think the movie, the way that it was all edited, was kind of like in their head still, but the visual process. Right. Kind of like almost setting the scene for... Uh, both sides of the characters once we get to uh, Asami. Yeah, and like, until we get to Asami, Aoyama is just silent and Yoshikawa, like, during one of their breaks, he's like, are you gonna ask any questions at all? I'm doing all the work here. here. (laughs) He's also like, Yoshikawa, whenever he sees someone with, like, adult movie experiences, he's, like, giving it off to his secretary, telling him, right, take this, note this down. He's like, oh, this is the priority. If Aoyama doesn't want them, then maybe I can find myself a wife. I'll need this later. Then, as aforementioned, Asami enters chat. Aoyama's, like, goofing his pants, basically. I think it's interesting to note, like, both in the movie and the book, he's, like, jaw-dropped. Here she is. This is the moment. But in the movie, one thing that stood out to me, like I mentioned, there was kind of, like, annoying high BPM music throughout all these other interviews. But as soon as Asami enters, like, it fades out into silence, which I think is just trying to reiterate Aoyama's headspace that he's, like, so... He's not focusing on anybody. It's just too much everything all at once until Asami comes in. And... Of course, she is this 24-year-old, beautiful, aspiring actress. And in her audition, she sits down and she basically explains, Oh, I'm repped by Ace Records, and I had former training as a ballerina, but I had to stop because I had a hip injury. So reiterating what was stated in her essay that made Aoyama love her in the first place. Or obsess over her, rather. Yeah, like, the way she enters the rooms, like, bowing at the entrance and then coming down, introducing herself, bows again, and then sits down. I don't know. It just feels like very subservient off the bat. And he's, yeah, she's like being very reverential to these two guys. Yeah. Like, well, while they're interviewing, they mentioned this record company person that she's supposed to be repped by. Mm-hmm. Like, we learn later that this guy's... Not in the picture, really. Yeah. He's been missing for a while. They don't know that at this point, though. They're like, okay, yeah, you have a reference. That checks out. Oh, you have other employment. Checks out. You're here to get the job. And, of course, like you were saying earlier, Trin, about the Christmas presents, Aoyama has finally opened this Christmas present. He sees Asami, and he is head over heels. And he is just impressed that someone so young can take life so seriously. Basically bringing up what she wrote in her essay. Yeah. And it's it's weird that he uses that word, like, I'm really impressed by this. And then he goes on this long, meandering talk about life and, like, how it takes us down these different paths. And then, that's life, isn't it? Like, he says something like that, some cheesy thing like that. And Asami's like, I got you now. And then she just thanks him. She bows and she exits. Yeah. At this point, both of them take a break. I mean, I'm pretty sure Aoyama's like, okay, I'm done. We don't need to audition anyone else. And Yoshikawa is like, okay, fucking thank you. I That girl gave me the heebie-jeebies. I needed to smoke. And I thought that was just kind of an interesting take. Like, 
Obviously, Yoshikawa is part of the interview process, but he's not made any very explicit comments about anyone that they're interviewing. But the fact that he thought Asami was really freaky is pretty important, and that will come back. We'll see that a lot more in, like, offhanded comments from the book and also later down the line in the movie. Yeah, I feel like in the movie it gives it more of a supernatural kind of feeling because it's just like a, ooh, I get bad vibes from that. But, like, whereas in the book... Yoshikawa kind of becomes suspicious of her origins and then like they find out that she like lied about part of the process uh eventually yeah, he's been dubious about her yeah and so like her it's more of her facts not adding up that Yoshikawa is like this girl is a, like a danger like nothing good is going to come of this whereas in the movie it has like that like kind of like a mm, I get bad vibes from that one yeah oh that's interesting. Like I, I also felt yeah. there's like that psychic connection that we were talking about between them. Like no other men are falling over her, but then this dude is like going bananas. Yeah, she's in his head. It's also kind of weird too because as Yoshikawa is taking his smoke break, Ayama gets up. Obviously, he's on break too, but he starts like meandering around the audition room and then sits down in the chair and is like trying to observe basically from Asami's perspective. But also, like, when he sat down in the chair, it just made me think he's, like, sitting there like, oh, I want to be in her. I want to smell her. Like, I want to be where she once sat. Like, kind of melodramatic and, like, creepy. Yeah, I can I can see that. For me, it was more like he's trying to imagine how he looked from her angle. Mm. Like, if he looked any good. Or, Did like, she think it was hot? <laughs> Did my wrinkles disappear from <laughs> this resolution? So... The audition's basically a success for him. Ayama goes back home, has a drink, and finally talks to Shige about his new catch and her looks. We kind of see that Shige has already been like entrenched in some of Ayama's ways because he tells his dad, well, I, I know you're looking for a wife, I just hope that you find one that cooks better than Rie, the housekeeper. Like, that, yes, that's all you care about in a wife, one that cooks good. <laughs> Although Ayama's kind of... uh is also kind of getting nervous about like how he is going to like basically transition this from like okay movie part to how do I get her to date me part yeah and so he's like kind of nervous about like how many days should I wait and he like in the book he calls up Yoshikawa and he's all like hey hey can I call her yet and he's like no and also no you called me last hour and then like he's like calling him over and over and over again he's like bro just wait a few days and then, like, finally, like, call her back or whatever. We don't, we kind of see the more of just, like, the hesitation, I would say, in the movie. Um, where he's just, like, he kind of, like, reaches for the phone, doesn't, and then decides to go for it kind of, like, thing. That that happens after they've been on a date, I think. Oh, okay. I'm, so I'm thinking about when it gets, yeah, when it gets, like, a little bit further into He still it. does have that apprehension initially. Like, he, when he goes back home... He has apprehension to make the call back that she has the part, but I think that's mostly tied, again, with the picture of the wife on the desk. Right. So I think what he finally, like, kind of comes up with is a kind of a callback to give more interrogation on her backstory, especially because some of her story didn't line up with her actual background. Because I think that she said something about the agent and it, like, she was in a certain part, but she was actually never like in that part or something to that effect i mean that might be kind of contributing but i think it's a lower priority for ayama at this point he's excited to see her and wants to give her the call back 
the audience sort of learns that Asami has just been waiting around for him to call for four days. Yeah, we kind of finally see her perspective. In the film, she's in like this child pose next to her phone. And it's like that similar shitty apartment with just the telephone. And in the background, there's a bag, like a giant bag. Like a burlap sack with suspicious looking yeah. anatomy, I guess. Just after Aoyama has called Asami and they've set a date, Yoshikawa calls him right after and tells him that he's called the music studio. I think we mentioned this already. He says like the producer that she put in her resume has been missing for a year. So Yoshikawa confirms his suspicions that something's off with her. Aoyama's like too up his own ass. He doesn't care. He's like, whatever. It's already, like, done in his head. It's already a sealed deal. And he just goes on to the date with her. During their first in-person meeting, they basically sit down and they discuss life, the universe, and everything. Both are giddy, kind of head over heels. And then Ayoyama finally, like, broaches the subject, like, Hey, so my co-producer told me that your music producer isn't legit. I think in the book she says this was someone she was previously repped by but hadn't been in contact with in a year. In the movie, however, she says, oh, uh, no, I lied. I I don't have anyone backing me, but somebody advised me that I use this company and say this was my uh, past producer, I guess, kind of thing. So she admits that she had lied in some way, shape, or form, both in the book and the movie. But I found it kind of convenient, like, either way, that, no, no producer, hmm. And then there's, like, this kind of weird, almost Red Heron-like thing that happens where a kid in a wheelchair is kind of wheeled into this place, and uh, the kid locks eyes with Asami, and there's just, like, this weird vibe that just feels off. It's, like, kind of a death glare, but not. And this is in the book only. There, there's This doesn't happen in the movie, so I think the book does a little bit better at foreshadowing in this instance. Yeah, I think in the movie it might just be kind of a passing, like, shot in the background instead of something that's, like, really focused on. She seems a lot more timid in the movie. Like, she's very understated, very low voice, very shy, I guess. Yeah, timid. Not necessarily subservient, but, like, very reverential and trying to be respectful, I guess. Just trying to butter him up. Yeah, true. After this first date, Yoshikawa and Aoyama meet up. They basically go to a rooftop playing golf together, and Yoshikawa expresses that he has more concerns about Aoyama's obsession with Asami. He kind of, like, rambles on, telling Aoyama life isn't so easy. Like, you don't... Things don't luck out in this favor as much. And I think Aoyama's kind of fed up with his friend at this point, even though his friend has set this all up. He is completely obsessed with Asami. Yoshikawa is right. And Aoyama's basically like, I don't want to do this movie anymore. I found my girl. I've got all, everything I wanted out of this. So let's like cut the shit. Yoshikawa is just telling him that like he's checked all her references and none of them are accessible. Yeah. The bar that she said she worked for has closed down. The music producer, like we already mentioned, can't be contacted. And Yoshikawa's also done some more dirt digging to try and find where her family are. But all he could find was that they up and moved and left no forwarding address. Yeah, and Yoshikawa is like super sketched out about this. And it's like, bruh, Ayama, no one knows anything about her at all. 
She comes from like nowhere. She's like light in the past and she seems a little bit too nice for you. It's like a woman of that caliber and she's not spoken for. So it's all a little too perfect. Coincidence? I think not. Yeah, but of course, Ayayama doesn't care. He's not seeing any red flags because he's looking at life through rose-colored glasses. He makes excuses for Asami in her stead and pushes back against Yoshikawa defensively. Ayayama puts puts him off, like telling him he wasn't born yesterday. I'm a man, and I can handle myself. Thank you very much. Well, you couldn't handle yourself enough to find your own wife. Yeah. There's like he's found his ideal woman, and he says, thank you, and I'll get the fuck out. And Yoshikawa's like, okay, fine. Do what you want, but at least wait a week. And Ayama is like, okay, I'll, I'll do that for you. <laughs> Finally, I'll listen to some voice of reason-ish. Yeah, and he is not like happy about this like at all. In the book, I think it's a little bit more elaborated on that he like starts losing like a ton of weight because of like his stress and like not being able to like talk to her. Like he just starts not having an appetite. Yeah, he will. He loses three kilos in the week or two that he's not speaking to this lady. He's met once or twice. He is absolutely like lovesick for sure. Yeah, he's he's in his study. Like, going through this mental anguish, but then he puts it off, and then we see him in his living room sitting while his um, housekeeper is walking around. We also get this weird dream in the middle, like, the same night I think he puts off calling her, he gets this weird dream, and we get a shot of Asami in her bedroom sitting in front of the telephone. There's a shot of Aoyama's wife behind a tree and she's looking at us. Yeah, that was very bizarre, just kind of out of nowhere. I guess maybe the subconscious messaging of Aoyama feeling guilty about what he's doing. Yeah. Like in his living room when he's moping, the housekeeper is talking to him. She's also buttering him up. She's like, you're so great. You have a house. You take care of your kid. A nice man. Yeah, she's like, I wish my husband would do stuff like this for me. Yeah. And then she's like, you must have a girlfriend. And Ayama is like silent. And then she's like, a man can't function without a woman's help. I almost read this as like her kind of trying to gauge him where he's at in his relationship. But maybe that was just like too into it. No, I think that's pretty accurate. I felt that way too. Mm. I also wanted to note that, like, in the movie, in this period where Aoyama is, like, debating if he should call Asami or not, it's pretty well acted. Like, I felt that part, he seems more relatable than in the book. Like, the fidgeting with his fingers and, like, reaching for the phone, kind of, like, biting his nails, that he's, like, drinking. He seems very physically anxious, and that's kind of, like, I, I think he cap the actor captured those actions pretty actions well. Actions very yeah. well, yeah. Yeah. I, I like the subtle acting in the movie throughout, like, the cameras are not very go-offy. Yeah, like they're they'll, not flashy. Yeah, they just let the actors breathe, I felt like. You actually get that slice of life. <laughs> <laughs> For those that know. So back at the office, Ayama's secretary, the one that he's had some kind of... Fling with? Alleged fling with. He's leaving, and then she says goodbye to everyone and then she stops in the corridor and goes to check on Ayama just to see if he registers her and he's like barely looking at her. He's yeah, just she waits for a while in the hallway like in plain view of him in the office and he's just tapping around his old ass laptop like you're not there I don't care. 
yeah, his attention has obviously changed. Yeah. I, I mean, I got the feeling that she really wasn't getting married when she mentioned it. Like, she was just trying to coax her reaction to trying see... To him. Yeah. Please. Please. Like, step in. And then they just get more distanced. In the book, it's mentioned a bunch of times how, like, the secretary is the most attractive woman in the office. And she must feel so shit by seeing Asami, who is, like, transcendent beauty or whatever. <laughs> Ethereal beauty. Yeah. The secretary can't even compare. They don't go into that that much in the in the movie. Right. She almost feels like an afterthought in a way. Yeah. So we see Aoyama look at the phone. Like after he's done talking with the secretary and she's out of his business. We see Aoyama look at the phone and then we cut to Asami's phone with the weird sack in the background. She's still kind of like waiting by it. Yeah, it's so weird that she's like just waiting for four or five days in that strange pose. It's a really creepy shot, and they they had this really down-looking shot on her spine. Yeah, and then there's a side shot of her face hidden in her hair, and you only see her lips. I mean, I feel like this is how men in that era sort of imagined women in their heads, like just waiting for them to call. But like as he's Debating this, he decides not to call her. Then he goes out into the corridor. He's also like done for the day. He's leaving. He pauses for a moment. He gets this look on his face and he's got... The actor sort of portrays this as kind of being under a spell. He stands there for a bit. Looks like he's got a headache or something. Blinks his eyes. And then he just goes back and decides to call her. This is also where I felt like there's this weird... She's Which, like pulling the strings in his head, almost like, you will call me before the end of the workday. Yeah, and when she calls her back, the phone rings for a while. It rings for a long time. I was like, geez. Yeah, and we see her smile slowly. And then the bag in the background moves suddenly. This was like a big jump scare for me the first time I watched it. <laughs> when I was rewatching it, I forgot about this point and it the sound effect was really weird and I was like, oh, oh, yes, this part. So I think it was kind of intended as like a jump scare, especially because if you're watching it, you're going to be sus of what's in the burlap sack, but then it moves, so. So she picks up the phone, finally, and then they go on another date. We don't get as much of like her reaction in the movie to actually being called, but in the book, she answers with glee, saying, I hope this won't sound too pathetic, but I've been waiting every day for you to call. And just hearing Asami's voice, Ayama almost has like a drug-like effect go through his body. Or like a witchy effect, I guess. Yeah, yeah he is under her spell. Absolutely. It's just entirely comforting to him. Like, all that anxiety he's been, like, just caring for all this time is just, like, released all at once. Basically, like, makes the spine shot from earlier kind of metaphorical to uh, the shivers down his spine that he gets from hearing her voice. But in a good way. Also, maybe he did find tomorrow's heroin. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I felt like the director did a really good job of portraying those in the movie visually. Mm. That kind of being under a spell and like waiting for someone, but in like a really creepy way. Yeah, at first when Ayoyama is contemplating, he seems like nervous and kind of giddy. But then during the scene when he is finally going to make the phone call, it, it does reinforce that like etherealness that he is kind of out of his mind, out of his own control. Yeah. 
Ayama tells Asami that he was really busy, and then he asks her out to dinner. She kind of takes it at face value, uh, I think in the book at least. Um, but he was essentially making excuses as to why he didn't call back, trying to seem normal, like, oh no, I'm not obsessed with you. But he definitely is. In the book, it's noted that he starts to grow more and more absent with his son Shige, who calls him out saying like, Dad, what the fuck is up with you? You're in a trance. I believe there's a scene where they're eating dinner together and Aoyama is basically just holding dumplings between chopsticks for three minutes, like, kind of drooling, glazed-eyed, not doing anything, and his son is like, what the fuck are you on? And at this point in the book, he does come clean to his son, saying, okay, I am going on a date with another woman, and Shige handles it pretty well, but has marked suspicions because of the age gap, and I think in the movie, Shige's like, oh, 24, she's closer to my age than yours, that's not weird. And he's also like, uh, she must be really beautiful. For you to be acting kind of like all this. Like you're under a spell. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And he's like, love is blind, so I'll be the judge of how good she is. So he tries to put on some more moves, try to get the second date rolling, rolling, rolling. But he wants to more get it away from the business side and start getting more into the dating side by going more into her personal life this time or at least having the intentions of trying to get to know her more after a few drinks yeah i feel like he already kind of like knows a fair amount of her personal life but i think his intent is to know more about like maybe to confirm oh what happened with your family like some of yoshikawa's concerns might be eating away at the back of ayama's brain just just a little bit right trying to basically get rid of like yoshikawa's voice inside of his head yeah they meet up on this date, and after a few drinks, Ayama is successful in getting Asami to talk about her family a little bit. She explains they aren't in Tokyo. Yeah, and when he tells her about the movie part, the whole restaurant is suddenly empty, and he says, like, hey, I gotta tell you about this movie. Like, the production company didn't really want to go into it so i think it's gonna be canceled yeah they didn't like the direction the story was going in or some excuse yeah it's weird like it was fully like fully packed just before he tells her this and then it's suddenly empty when he tells her this and then it goes back to being like in a different restaurant and she's talking and suddenly the background is filled with people again I think in a way the that it was edited, it kind of makes it look like it's multiple dates that yeah. this comes out. Which I think does like a really good job of like illustrating the passing of time with like multiple like intimate conversations that like you might not have like the time to explore each and every one in a movie while keeping a good pace. Right. So it's like a really good way of like having like, a uh, circular like door. Yeah, in the book, it's explicitly stated, like, they go on seven dates or whatever, but the movie makes it flow a little bit more, to the point that upon first watching it, I didn't even recognize that they were in different locations, but on the rewatch, I saw the the scene shift, and it it just flowed very naturally, like, the deeper they go into conversation, the different the locale is, but it still flows. It's very intimate. Yeah, it's like one long date over multiple days. Yeah. Like, she tells him, like, the movie didn't really matter to her, and it's just wonder to her, wonderful to have met Ayoyama. The movie mashes the dates into, like, a, a nice little montage. 
I think towards the end of this movie montage, they, they start getting closer to the crux of Asami's personality, or at least, like, her background, finally. Um, she briefly mentions that she's learned to release pain through dancing as a way to deal with difficult situations, but I th I'm pretty sure Ayama explicitly asked her, like, what happened to you? Her smile vanished as if turned off by a switch. Her face went pale, and she pressed her lips together. She basically just... Like, robot function off standby mode. <laughs> no, she's about to get into it. She's just like, I, I took it that she was not really Wanting excited to. about unveiling this uh, traumatic event, essentially, that kind of acts as like a mentor to her as well. <laughs> yeah. It's like her threshold slash trauma. So she unveils her past trauma to Ayoyama. Basically, her parents' divorce, she was sent to live with her uncle, whose wife abused her. Like, she pushed her down the stairs, bashed her head into windows, gave her cold baths. Which ended up with her, like, getting pneumonia as a child or something like that. So her doctor see her, sees the physical signs of abuse on her, and he's like, nope, you have to go back to live with your mom again. That wasn't peachy either because her mom remarried and her wheelchair-bound husband uh, basically verbally and then sexually abuses Asami. The movie doesn't give as much of this background as the book does, but we know that the wheelchair-bound like stepfather is essentially like one of the more uh, severe points of her trauma and really shaped who she became. But she rationalizes this experience, like uh, the most fucked up childhood, saying that she was able to overcome it and it helped make her strong. She almost doesn't hold resentment against anyone that has inflicted pain on her because she is trying to justify, oh, that's why I'm strong today. It made me better. It taught me the way. And this is the way. This is the way. <laughs> no, <'cause laughs> go to therapy. <laughs> Essentially, after she unloads this and finally comes clean to Ayayama about who, she, like, how she was affected, he feels very much closer to her. He he got what he wanted in learning more about her background and having some intimate secrets that they share. And, and it's kind of weird in the book because he even says to her, you don't seem like you've been scarred at all and when she has been like mentally and physically. And she just explains away that ballet helps her have an outlet to let the bad things out. Dance away that pain, baby. <laughs> in the book, after the date, Ayama calls Yoshikawa to tell him about how it all went. He's like, this is going so good. I love it. <laughs> For Yoshikawa, I'd be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's basically like that, and then he just says that he heard a rumor about that record company guy who they've not been able to contact, and the rumor is that he died of a heart attack. Mm. A heart attack that was caused by someone trying to cut off his feet. That's very specific. Dun-dun-dun! I see a recurring pattern here. Wheelchair kid, wheel- like, basically, like, legs cut off of producer guy, stepfather that was wheelchair-bound. Mm. Mm. Asami was loose, foot loose. <laughs> Took off the Sunday <laughs> shoes. 
Ayama also recounts his date to his son, kind of like walking in, seeing his son, looking up dinosaur stuff. Are you winning, son? And finally unloading at this point in the movie that he's really into this woman. They had this discussion a little bit earlier in the book, but at this point in the movie, they have the conversation that Asami is pretty young and closer to closer to Shige's age. Ayama also explains to his son that, oh, yes, she did have a tragic childhood, but she managed to overcome it. But Shige goes, I don't know anything about ballet, but from what I heard, it's pretty difficult to overcome being abused as a child. And he is very right and foreshadowing. Yeah, and during this time, uh, Yoshi and Ayama kind of talk and they discuss how uh, basically the film is silently led to its death over the course of a couple months while Ayama is still going out and seeing Asami on dates. In the novel, Ayama and Asami meet up at a fancy bar late October, where at this point he explains the project is completely kaput, and she handles it surprisingly well. Uh, Nav, I think you mentioned in the movie this happens earlier on, on like one of the date montages, but she Mm -hmm. just reaffirms, oh, I'm glad it fell through because I met you. Yeah. Like in the movie, all of this is just like a huge mashup montage. Yeah, like kind of one scene. Yeah. I think in the book, we are sort of introduced to a new character that doesn't show up in the movies at all. And they should have kept her. She was my favorite character. She was so good. Yeah. It's this fancy sushi bar that's run by a former geisha named Kai. Fun fact, my cat's name is also Kai. Kai is fun, and, like, Ayama basically, like, is able to, like, let out his frustrations with her, and she's also, like, she sounds no good for you, honey. She is, like, ephemeral, like, smoke. Yeah, Kai kind of acts as a, a wise elder, in a way. Or, like, a like the caterpillar from uh, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, fair point. At this sushi bar, Ayama and Asami have a good time, and they kind of just butter each other up, well... Rather, Asami does, mentioning that she loves how he talks, when essentially he's just kind of like rambling about anything and everything to her, and she's like, oh, I just like listening to you, You, uh, what's on your mind? It's so <laughs> profound kind of thing. You have the greatest thoughts. Yeah. You have the best ideas. And he's like, oh, the weather outside is frightful, isn't it? Like, <laughs> how profound. I love the way you mansplain. <laughs> At this point in the book, Aoyama finally comes clean about his dead wife to Asami. Yeah, he confesses his full feelings to Asami. He's like, my wife's dead. I need a new woman. <laughs> I cannot be unmarried in this landscape. <laughs> He's like, tells her that he wants to marry her. And then she tells him like she's not that kind of girl and just runs off. Way to ruin the date, bud. Ayama <laughs> goes and it's like, oh shit, I fucked up. And Kai's like, yeah, go get her. So he, he chases... <laughs> Yes, exactly. He chases her frantically down the street, trying to, like, compromise with her, essentially, saying, it's okay if you never get married to me, I I just, I love you so much, but we don't have to move this fast, and she wants confirmation that he's not fucking around with her feelings, and once he confirms this, in the book they share a kiss and I love you, and he's finally fulfilled, the rom-com is complete, fireworks. It's literally going off in his head. Love is all around you starts playing. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't put all this stuff in the movie, though. Flower petals yeah. fly across the screen. Yeah. I mean, this was like one of the good cuts that they made. Yeah. 
Fair. Bad cook being like gangster. <laughs> yes. Bring back gangster. I also think it was bad to cut out Kai though, because after Ayama comes back into the bar, she kind of sits him down and also affirms some things that Yoshikawa has been saying that she gets an uneasy feeling from Asami. Like initially, Aoyama asked her, Oh, what do you think? Isn't my lady so perfect? Isn't she wonderful? But Kai describes that she gets kind of an inhuman vibe from Asami. Well, nowadays, men and women, amateurs and pros, generally fall into one of two categories. Either they don't know what it is that's most important to them, or they know but don't have the power to go after it. But this girl's different. She knows what's most important to her, and she knows how to get it, but she doesn't let on what it is. She's like smoke. You think you're seeing her clearly enough, but when you reach for her, there's nothing there. She also goes on to say that people can either be a saint or a monster, but nothing in between. Now, of course, Aoyama doesn't like to listen to what any people have to say bad against Asami. He tries to defend her, saying she's a nice person, but Kai calls his bluff like, Bitch, you are delusional. I can see through the smoke and mirrors that something is not right. And it's probably because he's, like, thinking with his other head as he's, like, Aoyama's, like, fucking just, like, Oh, I just gotta get in there. Like, And then he starts, like, even talking to his co-workers. He's like, Hey, how, how best do you get the fuck on at this age? And then, like, they all suggest to him... Hey, you need to like go like do like a tiny like vacation to uh take her to the Motel Six. <laughs> basically, but for like a like a weekend or something like that. And so I think in the book it's explained that it's like one of a like a place that he go like he would go to often with Shige and uh his ex wife. Yeah. Which adds on to the guilt later, I feel like, or like the undertones of what uh is. But in the movie I feel like we kinda get this feeling because it's also I think uh, the same place is referenced earlier in the film, like near fishing, while they were fishing, and I think it's also shown later um, with that. But he's really starting to kind of concoct this idea of going there just with uh, Asami and seeing like if she will give like reciprocate some of the feelings and they can get it on finally, see if they're fully compatible. Yeah, I also found it like interesting that Kai mentions that thing about her being like smoke mm -hmm. and then the production designers chose white as her costume throughout the movie so she's always wearing white like a ghost yes smoke. smoke and i think you can really see this when they do end up at the retreat i believe it kind of opens on a shot looking through a doorway of asami like in front of the waves and she wears like it kind of looked like a nightgown almost but white very breezy like she has this very flowy, ephemeral silhouette. So, although they don't capture as much of the like, as much of this nature in the movie as like described in the book, I think it really was hit on the head with this image. Yeah, it's a really iconic shot. It's almost like a banshee. Yeah, yeah. kind of. Especially when she turns and just smiles at him, but it kind of like her smile looks empty to me, almost yes. like hungry in a way, like holding back. Your true feelings. Mm. He's really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I get the heebie-jeebies too. Like, I'm on Yoshikawa's side. Like, I need to get a smoke <laughs> in 10 minutes. Dude, listen to your friends. <laughs> She's creepy. Yeah. So they're at the hotel and 
Ayama walks up to the balcony and he's just looking at her, really happy. He's got a, his whiskey going on. And then later in the evening, he's talking about what to do before dinner and he's just like sitting nervously. He's rambling again. Yeah. I love how you talk, Ayama. <laughs> oh, we can go to the ski lodge and we can go to the cafe and we can go to a museum and we can do this. Yeah. And they don't know, like, if it's going to be open or not, or, like, <laughs> what, what do we do? And Asami's just sitting on the bed. He, she gets up and turns off the light. She starts undressing. And they don't show any nudity at this point. I think she just goes straight under the covers. Yeah. And Ayama just keeps talking <laughs> while she's doing all this stuff. And then she calls him over. And that shuts him up. She's, <laughs> like, sort of awkward in a way like he doesn't know what to do he starts undressing but then she's like no keep your clothes on and then this weird piano romantic music starts playing in the background in like the book it's like also mentions she's like i want you to see me first all of me yeah and then she starts like raising her bed sheet across her legs and she stops right at the point where she's got her scars and then she's like... Which are like on her inner thigh. Yeah, there's like these really long two kind of burn marks. He's like, you want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, this talks about like harming herself at this point. She's like, I want you to know all about me. And this entire time, Ayama could give two shits about any of this and it's just like those tits though yeah he's basically just staring at her like uh-huh uh-huh babe mm-hmm she's almost pleadingly telling him her voice is really shaky like you can hear in the acting she's almost holding back tears and she's like i only want you to love me everyone says they will but i hope you are different please love me only me yeah, and in the book, this only me, only me is reiterated, kind of like if you're in a trance-like state, repeating things over and over again. But mm -hmm. I think this is really telling for like what her true temptations and motivation are as like a point in the villain's arc. She wants that whole all-consuming, she wants the obsession, the affection. She wants to be the only one. Like Johan in Monster. <laughs> That's true. And then cue the sexy time. In, in the movie, there's a very loud noise and a blanket roll. And then it just kind of cuts to Ayama and Asami lying in bed together. But the book it's goes a horrifying into, it's very scene. awkward, consensual, rough sex with two lonely, damaged people. And lots of drugs. Well, we don't know that quite yet. I, I think the book does kind of have an interesting dichotomy, though, because it's a moment where they should be the most intimate and the most warm and comforted, but when they confirm their love and attraction, it seems the most cold and most alien, which... It almost feels like that kind of cold, metallic feeling. Yeah. yeah it's like clinical, very sterile. Mm -hmm. But he's like, this is like the best of my life, but I think at one point... In the book, he's like, okay, I've been hard for so long, I think my penis is about to explode. It gets way too into it, and I feel like it's even more horrifying than the most iconic horrifying part of the like this entire story. Well, I think that ties in where you, where you were saying that something like 
maybe was off with this sexual encounter. In the movie, he wakes up with a headache. Maybe he was hungover. But the fact that he's had this like very long-lasting, painful erection, I think it can be implied that he may have been drugged in this instance as well. Viagra. Some benzos. Because it also kind of feels like, you know, it's kind of like in and out, like almost like this dreamy kind of like feeling or aspect to it. Almost like as if it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's affirmed by him waking up in the middle of the night and Asami is gone. Yeah. I think in the movie when they do the whole blanket roll thing, Asami is not there. She's already gone. Mm. I mistook it. Yeah, that's correct. He's the only one that's in bed. I believe so, and I feel like uh, the book gets like way in too much into how like his like pubic hair is just plastered with cum still, and like he has like a hangover, and he like calls like the front desk, and like well, the front desk calls him. Oh, it gives him a moment of clarity. <laughs> <laughs> I blocked out that I blocked out that part about the pubic hair in my mind. Yeah, it's a little too visceral. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad they cut this part also. But... <laughs> They kept the good shit till the end. I feel like we do see the sex in the movie, but it's way crazier. We'll get into it. So as mentioned, Ayama wakes up, Asami is gone, and the phone is ringing, and his head is ringing, and the front desk says, Oh, sir, we've been trying to get in contact with you. And he was drugged on benzos and did not hear this loud-ass phone ringing. They confirmed that his wife has left. So... He, in the book, he, his obsession resumes, but it is more desperate, where he searches for her for weeks on end, completely distraught and depressed to the point of losing weight again. It's time for post-sex clarity. This is the part in the relationship where you really feel like, I've had sex, now do I really want to commit, or do I want to just... Shop around for another fish. (laughs) (laughs) I think... Ayama does want to commit, though, like the fact that he's still obsessively looking for her, but it's not in like a wholesome, like, I, I do still love her way. It's that kind of dark obsession over her. Yeah, kind of like, uh, where's my cigarettes? Where are they? I need them now. And at this point in the movie and the book, the tension starts to amp up a lot more. Yeah, in the movie, I feel like it just blindsides you and you get like this crazy whiplash. The book is more like long and drawn out. Drawn out. Yeah, he's searching for weeks on end, but it, it goes very fast in the movie. Yeah. We jump straight back to the office and the camera is all shaky and Ayoyama is back to his office. Like he's running after Yoshikawa and telling him all about what happened and she just left and she misunderstood me. Then he's like begging Yoshikawa to give her address to him. Yeah, he's like, oh, it should be on her resume. Just let me see it. Let me find her. Yeah, Yoshikawa is like, dude, just forget about her. You're too old. Just forget about her. And Ayayama is like, are you saying that I'm a pathetic middle-aged man who's fallen for a young girl? And Yoshikawa is like, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yoshikawa is like, you remember what you said, right? Like you said you weren't born yesterday. And Ayayama is like, really pissed and he just leaves like before leaving he's like i'm gonna find this on girl on my own i don't need your help yare yare <laughs> yare yare and then back in his office he's looking at a resume 
grasping at straws, trying to find anything about her. Yeah. And then he finds, like, the name of the ballet studio where she worked. Called, I think it's called Shibata-san Ballet Studio, which is the same name of the producer that she yeah, put on. the fake music producer or the real one. Yeah. Now we go on to this chase kind of montage thing. He's hunting her down. Yeah. He's hunting for clues and he's like on skipping town all around. He reaches the ballet studio, which is like in this really shitty part of town. It's It almost looks abandoned in a way. Like all of the facades of the building are boarded up and plastered over. It doesn't look like there has been much life in this area for a while. Mm-hmm. This is where the movie also starts getting into a little bit more impressive with its cinematography. Yeah. It's got like Dutch angles, it's got shaky cams, it's got like bright orange sun kind of thing. There's like really, really loud train outside the ballet studio and the ballet studio is just boarded up. He's like, oh, this this is like my only chance. I have to break in and he breaks in. And the movie sort of shifts into this weird dreamlike vibe with orange lighting and red lighting and blue rim lighting all around. It's almost like a Lynch movie, like a David Lynch yeah, movie. That's a fair way to put it. It's kind of like hazy too, so very delirious feeling almost. Yeah. And like through this dark room, he's, we hear this piano that's being played. It almost feels like background music, but we cut to this old man sitting in the corner of the boarded up ballet studio just plinking away at the piano. And everything just seems wrong. Yeah. 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 This would be the point in the horror movie that like somebody is about to get brutally murdered or something. Yeah, it's like opening a gift and it's filled with maggots or something. <clears throat> yeah. That's what it feels like. The old man is like that quintessential old pervert. He's in... He's playing the piano in his wheelchair, but there's also children's ballet shoes tied to it that are dingy. He is dingy. He turns around with this, like, creepy-ass smile looking at Aoyama. And Aoyama's just kind of chill in this situation. He's like, hey, I'm looking for Asami. I just want to find her. And Shimada is, like, Shimada is the name of the dude. The creepy old perv. Yeah. And he just starts laughing. He's like, oh, so you've... Want to find Asami. Did you see her? Did you hear her voice? Did you touch her? Did you hold her? How was it? Was it good? And then he just like sort of squeaks up to him almost like comically, like slowly squeaking on his wheelchair. And then we get, it's all intercut with like flashbacks of young Asami being abused. Like he's on his knees and she's got her legs open and he comes with this red hot metal rod. And he sort of puts it on her inner thigh and she screams in pain. We're showing how she really got her scars. Like before she mentioned it was self-inflicted, but this is where we're seeing how she really got it. And then he stands up and he shows his fake feet. Yeah, they're kind of like the jankiest prosthetics, basically, right? Yeah. And I, I don't, I'm unclear on this point. Like, did she saw his feet off? Or I think it's implied. At least that's what I understood. Yeah, in, in the book it sort of feels like the stepfather had bad feet and that's where she got the idea from. 
Yeah, I feel like he lost his feet either like in war or because of like health problems. Oh, maybe I'm mistaken then. And then um, I think after the abuse, taking on that characteristic of uh, making people look like her abuser. Yeah. Maybe it could be a justification in her brain for her potential actions in the future. Not foreshadowing. Not at all. He looks at his shitty prosthetic feet that you get from Amazon <laughs> or something. And he just tells Ayoyama, just go home, dude. You're done. Ayoyama exits this rundown ballet studio with disappointment. Like, okay, it's a dead end. I'm not going to find her. But he has this brief flash, like almost a recessed memory about her initial audition where she says, I used to work at a bar called the Stonefish. And he's like, ah, that's it. I found the thread. So he books it to this like very dingy underground area where the so-called stonefish bar is supposed to be. Talk about catching the biggest fish. Hi, hi. Now, this place looks closed down, not nearly as run down as the ballet studio, but it has not seen life for a while. It has junk mail piled up, and this random neighbor kind of foreshadowing is like, hey, nobody's been there for a while, bar's been closed. And I was like, oh, fuck, my last thread. But kind of prize for more information, asking this neighbor, hey, there's a lady named Asami who used to work here, like, three nights a week, the neighbor goes, no, this was run by one person, and they were brutally murdered. Yeah, and he sort of prized more, and he learns that it was over an affair with a music industry person. Mm. Like, he, he sort of goes into so much detail, it's almost like spill the, spilling the tea or something. I haven't talked to anybody in a long-ass time ever since <laughs> the building got condemned. And he just, like, tells him all the details, like, the body was chopped up. And because the building is, like, built 20 years ago, it's been tilted to the side for a while. So the blood flowed from under the door into the hallway. Everyone could see it. And the camera is thus here to continue with this uh, cinematography language. The cops came in, and then they tried to put the body parts together. (laughs) Humpty Dumpty. With three extra fingers and an extra ear and an extra tongue. That was so weird in the movie. Like, Ayama gets really creeped out. And there's this cuts in between of him getting scared. Like, he's imagining these body parts. And he sees, like, this weird wriggling tongue. And we have a shot of this weird wriggling tongue that's, like, shaking. It's, it's a bit comical for me. I mean, I guess back in the 90s, it was like, oh, God, that's disgusting. But, yeah, it was kind of, like, weird interspersed, like, okay, random body parts. Yeah. It's all. It's also like kind of that Evil Dead, the old Evil Dead movie, similar kind of vibe. For sure, but it's kind of uh has that '90s feel to it when uh, it goes from that kind of chaos to just like a shot of back at the house, normal everyday. Yeah, everything's of, calm. Everything's calm, normal business, and uh, we see uh, Rie or Rie, Rie the housekeeper feeding. Gangsta. <laughs> Gangsta. And that uh, there's also kind of a hint that someone might be lurking about the home. Yeah, because it's almost as if Rie is being watched through the bushes the way that the camera is, like, observing her feed the dog and exit. 
You know, it's like a handheld point of view shot from outside. Like you can almost imagine heavy breathing being accompanied with that. Yeah, and then like shots of like the picture of the wife and then like the bottle of alcohol that we know that uh, Ayama usually drinks. And then basically, as you mentioned, all these kind of weird shots that kind of give a creepy supernatural vibe to them. Yeah, that's what I felt like. Like It's like one of those evil dead shots where this primordial force is invading the house. And then it just cuts to the dog who walks off frame nonchalantly. The very ominous, just somebody is watching the house, somebody is entering the house. Ayama is none the wiser because he returns home and hears a voice message from Shige saying, Hey, I'm out with friends. I'll be back another day. Also, make sure to feed Gang because he's been hiding out under the house for no reason. Gangsta going underground. (laughs) (laughs) At this point in the book, it's been a few weeks to a month after Asami has disappeared and Ayoyama returns home and decides to drink away his sorrows and starts chugging apple teenies while Shige, of course, is out. But rather than at a friend's house, he is at a ski resort. Yeah, they really spend a lot of time in the with the chasing after Asami in the movie. Yeah. In the book, sorry. And in the movie, it's just like Ayama comes back home. He's just sitting and he starts to drink. And then he starts to feel weird. His eyes hurt, his neck hurts, his fingers tingle. He looks kind of twitchy too when he's sitting in his like lounge chair as he's drinking and feeling off. Yeah, he, there's this weird, there's the intricate shot of his fingers doing like yeah. a twitch on the armrest of his sofa. And not only does like Ayama feel off, it also starts to kind of dawn on us and Ayama that something is up or not correct here because uh, he was probably drugged as he can't move very well. And he only recognizes this when he basically hears gangsters, like, stop barking. And he knows that. It's silent. Yeah, it's just silent. Like, hey, that was weird. So he tries to get up and nothing. He can't move at all. And just collapses, like, onto the floor. Like, and he's like, oh, fuck. Like, what's happened here? Am I having a stroke? Like, can I just not hear anything anymore? Or what's going on? Yeah, there's a shot of the camera on the ground and he's just falling back towards it. But before he can fully go out, he sees Asami step out. Now, we learn at this point that Asami has snuck into his house, of course, and seen the picture of his dead wife and feels like she has been betrayed by Aoyama. Now, in the movie, things get a little timey-wimey because we get this fever dream intercut where they are back together on their second date, and she tells the true story of her abuse then. Yeah, but in the books, like, Asami just comes out and injects Ayoyama with something to make him sleep. Like she says, to make you sleep, but to make you feel everything more. And she injects him right in the tongue, (laughs) and he's out. Like a light. So in this fever dream that's been established in the movie, while Aoyama is out... We get kind of these intercut like flashbacks almost to learn a little bit more about Asami's background. So we know about her abuse. Um, We also learn that the stepdad hated her and she would stay at home and do nothing until her mom returned. And 
we can finally put the pieces together. This room that we've seen various versions of her throughout her life in, this is the room that she's been waiting in. And the flashbacks are kind of intercut with her in her youth, in her adulthood. And in a way, this just affirms that she's stuck in this mental state of like being trapped in a bad situation. Yeah, I am in the dream. Like it's this weird dream where you're sort of in control of yourself, With your actions. Dreaming. Yeah, and like he says in the dream that it's strange that she has such a sad story. Asami, I think we've repeated this a bunch of times. Like she, Asami just says that ballet is the reason she never killed herself. Then in the same dream, they're back in the, one of the restaurants they had this date in, and. Ayama is talking to Asami, but then he hears his wife call his name and his, he looks around and his wife and his kid are sitting on the table right next to them. And Asami gets up and he's like, hey, oh, hello. <laughs> hey, let me introduce you to my girlfriend. It's kind of awkward, but in the weird way that nobody notices in dreams, like as a viewer, you can feel how bizarre this is, but they're like, oh, we'll just roll with it. This makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and then the the wife looks at uh, Ryoko, looks at Ayama, and she turns her head to look at Asami, and she's like, "Nope, she's not good for you." Nope. Hmm. Another person saying this. Interesting. Yeah, even the dream version is like to inform him of dangers. His subconscious is trying to inform him of dangers too. Yeah, and then we really get into like kind of like the weird like psychedelic part of it i suppose but like in the more of like a nightmarish way yeah it's a nightmare trippy yeah where you basically see ayama back in the apartment but with asami's like going down on him <laughs> and it's very it's very jarring because this is very forward of her but then we see it's no longer asami it's the secretary going down on ayama when he's been given the cold shoulder too she just confesses, or like, this is where she truly tells her feelings, I guess. It's it's probably his guilty conscience talking. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you just had sex with me one time. You just left me. You just tossed me. You tossed me aside. Yeah. Using me. used. Yeah. And they didn't even acknowledge after. And then we cut back. And it's Asami back giving him head. And then suddenly it's Shige's girlfriend doing that. And schooly girl uniform and everything. And it's just really messed up how everything is shifting between all of these women and a child, like, being fucked up and in his head. Like, it's just, it's bizarre and gross and creepy. Yeah, it's, I sort of read it as, like, a state of patriarchy kind of thing. Like, women willing to do stuff for men in power. Or maybe feeling like they have to. Yeah, they have to. What it felt like. And for me, like, Asami is a great villain because she breaks free of that role that society has given her. And she breaks free in the way that she follows the rules already. Like, she's already timid and submissive. And then when she takes revenge, he's still timid. So it's like a subversion of expectations i guess i don't feel like she's as timid necessarily but she's definitely not like over the top as a typical villain would be yeah 
So we're back in the dingy apartment and Ayoyama, who's been given head by three women <laughs> at this point in his dream, he trips over the burlap sack that's been in Asami's room and the sack moves and he looks at it and it's like this person crawls out of it. Like nightmare fuel. Yeah. It's like slowly this hand pops out and it's got just two fingers. It's got three fingers missing. And this person, unwashed dude, grown out hair, he can't talk. He's just mumbling. He's and he making these awful sounds. Yeah, and he comes out of this and we see his stubby legs. And he's just crawling towards Ayoyama and asking for food. Yeah, the telltale sign that Asami has been involved. There are feet missing. <laughs> yeah. So... This dude comes out, he's got stubby legs, he's crawling out of the bag, and he's coming towards Ayama and asking for food, and he's like totally disgusted. He's holding his mouth, almost like holding back puke. Yeah. yeah. But also, it seems like he's trying to hold back a scream in a way, because he hears something coming from behind, yeah. and it's Asami who's in the kitchen, or in the background area of the house, and Ayama kind of like ducks behind the wall so he cannot be spotted yeah and it's he reveals asami in the background and there's this like regurgitating sound that's like really disgusting she's throwing up into a dog bowl and she comes out and this dog bowl is overflowing with her puke and she walks over to this dude who came out of the bag and he gives it and she gives it to him like lays it, it down on the ground like eat it little doggy yeah and he just laps it up and he's like looks up at her and tries to say yummy at least the subtitles try to say <laughs> yummy <laughs> i don't know what he's actually mumbling and, and then at this point she turns into like the younger version of herself and turns to ayoyama who's still kind of lurking in the background going will you really only love me this point in the movie d during the research for this episode i was listening to this podcast, Unpleasant Movies, episode 19. We'll link it in the description. <laughs> the doobly-doo. Where they talk about this being like the role reversal of women as obedient dogs. Yeah, because she's the one that's serving her presumably stepdad. Yeah. Her own vomit. Yeah, so the, the role is kind of switched around where the, the man is being treated like a dog, like an obedient dog, basically. I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, that's a fair point. And then you just cut to Asami walking slowly towards the ballet teacher who's still playing the piano. The creepy guy in the wheelchair. Yeah. He takes out razor wire and slices it has his head off. Yeah, before this, she kind of like, it almost looks like she's pulling out an instrument that she's going to play, and she wraps the razor wire slowly around this ballet teacher's neck and goes, this is used to cut through flesh and bone so easily. She kind of gently saws it a little bit and then does the big, like, tie, cuts the head off. Yeah, and then the head just rolls down from his shoulder onto the floor. There's this creepy montage of shots of Ayama with various women, and they're all sort of repeating words they've already said earlier in the movie. I think, I don't remember exactly what wakes him out of this dream. I think it's the housekeeper that he's having sex with in the dream who says, 
men needing women or something and he gets out of this dream he gains consciousness he's still paralyzed but he can see and feel stuff around him and he sees asami in a different room and she's dressing up in this black latex apron yeah the iconic like bdsm gear basically yeah she's got black gloves and apron and like she comes out as the door opens we see we finally see a shot of what happened to the dog my gang is so quiet now yeah, yeah he's dead in the other room and i think this is a little bit more unsettling in the book because when ayama wakes up obviously he's still paralyzed but he sees gang is alive but nearby unconscious as well and when asami dons her gear and comes over she takes that same razor wire that we see like to cut the uh, ballet teacher's head off she uses it to start dismembering gangsta right in front of Ayuyama even though he's like no just leave the dog alone I want my son to have something living if you're gonna kill me but gangsta is just like a he's there and he's gotta be done with too she's kind of taking the Machiavellian approach of like alright I have to cut off everyone in your family I can't leave anything left to hang on to yeah that felt total war yeah, that that was more apparent in the movie. Uh, sorry, in in the book, like she's more like a vendetta against this whole mm-hmm. family. But in the movie, it's just against Ayoyama. Yeah, it seems. And there's not much like hurrah about gang gangsta being dead in the movie. You just see him. You know that's what happened and what will likely happen next to Ayoyama, or even uh, Shinge. Mm-hmm. So she comes out donning her iconic gear and she takes out this medicine kind of thing a big syringe yeah it's good it's a huge syringe and she turns around and it's a really iconic shot i think that's the one used in the movie poster or... yeah if you ever look up audition you're gonna see asami holding a giant syringe in black latex gloves yeah so she turns around and tells ayama you can't move anymore You'll be paralyzed, but your nerves will still have feeling. That way, you can enjoy the pain. And then she just injects him inside the tongue. Brutal. She brings out this huge piece of cloth that looks uh, strikingly similar to that burlap sack her stepdad was in. And I I found it kind of weird. She lays it out on this, like, carpet that Aoyama has in his house to basically, like, keep it clean. But obviously that won't work. And at this point, she's kind of just talking to the paralyzed Aoyama on the floor, saying, You just wanted me for sex. You got so many girls to audition, but never gave them the part. Only called me back, essentially, to fuck me. And I think this is where Asami approaches her event horizon, and she fucks him right back. But not in the way you would expect. She opens this box full of what look like very long acupuncture needles and she basically straddles him on the floor and starts inserting them into his abdomen talking in this very sweet voice like saying kitty 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 which means deeper and she's putting these in the most painful points of his body essentially and just talking to him very gently saying words create lies pain can be trusted And this positioning is basically her way of penetrating him and getting back to him. She's on top of him, and he's wiggling in pain, and she is putting these needles deeper and deeper into his skin. Yeah, it's also something, like, at least in porn, like one star say, deeper, deeper, (laughs) while having sex. 
So it's this weird, really fucked up situation where she's saying deeper, deeper, and visually it looks like sex, but he's like being brutally yeah, tortured. She's torturing him. And it's also kind of revealed that uh, she feels betrayed at this point from Ayama's trust. And whether that was because of something that happened after she disappeared, or if it was something before is kind of unclear. Well, I think it was the realization that he still, like, loves his dead wife and also his son. Mm. That's the ultimate betrayal for her because she demanded that she be the, the only, only one. Yeah. And this is the sex scene that the movie doesn't get or the audience doesn't get earlier. Yeah. And it's not nearly as visceral in the book. So there's, there's kind of that, like, spin, I guess. Yeah. And in a way, the movie twists that male gaze. Like, usually in movies, it's a very gratuitous, like, sex scene. Okay, you're going to watch them have sex, but this is her getting her revenge and taking her own, like, autonomy, essentially. She even, like, inserts needles into his eyes to basically say, like, fuck this male gaze. I'm pretty sure, like, we're reading too much into this, but... At least, like, from our backgrounds and, like, our position in culture, I feel like these are good points to notice, at least. Mm -hmm. And I counted, there's, like, 22 needles in his belly at this point. Jeez. There are two needles in his left eye and one needle in his right eye. And she just flicks them, like, pain, words create lies, pain can be trusted. And she's just flicking the needles as she's saying this. It's almost kind of, like, joyful? Yeah, she's like playing with a toy or something. Yeah. It says like, kitty, 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 kitty. That's so creepy, like the whole thing. And she's so gentle when she says it too. But to me, it almost sounded like she was saying, kitty, 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 like, kitty, kitty, kitty. Which I think is funny because like she, as she is going deeper, deeper, I'm just imagining like cats crawling on you and digging their claws and going, deeper, you must feel the pain because you did not give me snacks. <laughs> or listeners who are not in this room there's a cat in the background who wants snacks yes or outside and she's prepping her weapons as we speak she's sharpening her acupuncture needles of claws i also found it so like painful to watch when she like just scoots over his belly and all the needles are there she just scoots over the needles and starts putting i did not eyes. notice that the first watch like i saw this note that you had about it i watched and was like Oh shit, she's she's like not feeling anything at or she is and she's just so zen about it that Yeah. That or maybe she lost feeling in her like thighs lower region from her abuse. Actually, well, if you think about her hip injury, she might have some um issues with her nerves, so it's not too far out of the realm of possibility that she actually can't feel anything. Hmm, that's true. She also just kind of has like a terminator kind of aspect to her where she can just kind of keep going yeah. through like so much <laughs> like as we get further into this i think we'll see how, how tough as nails she is i feel like a lot of the patriarchy is stuck in childhood like being so spoiled by society that favors everything like male privilege and all that stuff and asami feels like the mom you didn't want but the mom you needed which is torturing you to be better buckle up buttercup Yes, the precise kind of mom you want. You only realize... Dommy mommy. <laughs> you only realize who you are by going through pain and suffering. Only when you can feel pain can you know the shape of your heart. She's like a Cenobite. 
Yes, a perfect motherly figure. A demon to inspire us all. Yes. He also tells Ayama that because of him, his son has to feel pain too. And this might be hearkening on the, like, the mommy you need kind of thing. Um, maybe she essentially doesn't want Ayama's toxic ideals to continue on in another person, especially another young man. But he's like, no, 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 you stay away from my son. She's like, oh, so this is the confirmation. You also love your son, too. So you definitely lied to me. You don't love only me. You have other people that you care about, which... Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And then she pulls out that razor wire that we've seen earlier. Takes it out. He holds it out and shows it to him, and she's like, you can't escape without feet. <laughs> Which, the logic is solid. Yeah, and it yeah, explains a lot now. Let's see you crawl your way out of this one, bud. <laughs> Hard to run without legs. He starts putting shackles on his feet, and then, like, very sweetly showing her Ayama like it's her favorite toy like this wire that she'll use to cut off his feet and she repeats that same thing she said earlier like it can cut through flesh and bone easily yeah it's the exact callback showing off your instrument your favorite toy your way to create art in a way perhaps it almost has like a ritualistic aspect to it and she begins cutting his left leg like a child playing with the toy she loves biology more than Chie does, at least from the book. And I think as she is performing this act, finalizing this ritual, that's where she reaches her event horizon, cutting off his left foot in this weird, like, retribution style to make Ayama at least a semblance, kind of like her wheelchair-bound stepfather, to take away his freedom and his autonomy and his ability to escape yeah, there's this creepy shot where we're outside and everything is silent. Like, we get a breather from all the torture we've been seeing. And it's just, like, gleeful little Asami just tosses this severed foot to the glass door and it leaves, like, a blotch Streak. of blood. Yeah. yeah, it's so creepy. And then she gets on to his right leg. And when she's in the middle of, like, she starts cutting, she's goes through like maybe half an inch or something she hears a sound in the back of the house it's deus ex machina (laughs) yeah i like kind of how in the book how this plays out is she actually gets through the like left leg and it's like shin bone is like sticking out and then she gets like part way through his right leg and then he uses his shin bone to like stab it into her eye and, like, causes her to go, like, tumbling down the stairs. Mm. And it's, like, so brutal. And she, just, like, stands up and's all like, oh, I'm coming for that other leg. Like, and it's just, like, so much more, like, intense. Yeah, in the book, it's, like, a lot a lot of stuff happens. It's very chaotic. From Ayoyama's side. But in the movie, Ayoyama is just, like, the... the he's kind of useless. Like, yeah, he can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's why it's kind of like Shige acts like a deus ex machina because he conveniently returns home before his dad is dead because his friend conveniently got sick and he's conveniently able to, like, help out at this point when it would be kind of satisfying if he wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the things, like, even in the book, he kind of returns right at the end, like Mm -hmm. the last couple of pages. 
also like in the legacy i feel like we'll go into it but kind of it tries the subliminal messaging of the movie for right me. right but we cut back to ayama waking from a nightmare but it's actually the dream within the real nightmare more timey-wimey stuff <laughs> yeah it's kind of like a weird thing i don't see we, we see this all in movies a lot where it's the opposite way like you wake up from a bad nightmare and it's back to real life but then it's like he wakes it's like him escaping into the past of good life right yeah and he's got his feet and he's got the girl on his in the bed and he's like everything is fine yeah he's kind of escaping from his torture into like that short moment of like bliss that they had post-sex he's remembering asami's happiness to his proposal that he's kind of like at first what in the hotel room that is in this dream of the past she's like yes i'll i'll accept and that's her accepting proposal but because he's just like dumped his guts out basically uh he kind of forgot you know head empty in both ways you mean dumped his nuts? Yeah, dumped his nuts, dumped his gut. Yeah. <laughs> so he acts surprised, like, oh, you accept my proposal? What? And basically just kind of affirms, like, he just wanted to fuck her after all. Like, he didn't super care about her. Like, he... Yeah. He he came, he saw, he conquered. Or at least that's what he wanted to do. And I found it kind of funny because at this point, as he's recounting the aftermath of their, like, sexual interaction, Asami is cuddling him and being like, oh, it's like I've become the real heroine. Which, if we imagine that Aoyama is just, like, dreaming right now and he is actually being tortured, in her story, she is the real heroine. She is taking back, like, what she has lost in a way. She has lost trust. Uh, so to her, yeah, she is the hero. Now, I know she's portrayed as a villain, and today she is our villain, but she's kind of also the real heroine, as she set out to be. <laughs> real human being and a real hero. So we cut back to the scene of the torture. So waking He's up awake. from Yeah, waking up from the nightmare. To the dream, to the nightmare, back to reality, I think, if we're keeping track. Yeah. And it's just, he hears her saying, kitty, 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 kitty. And it's very jarring. Like, he's having this dream of their past, like, interaction, then, as the audience, you hear, kitty, kitty, kitty. And then, bam, you're back with him. Being yeah. Tortured. Yeah, and in the book, this kind of chaos, like, all, like, ends pretty abruptly after uh, the whole staircase incident and then uh, Shinge kind of coming home it just kind of like ends there almost yeah the movie gives a little bit more of resolution because Aoyama is not out of the woods yet Shige is not out of the woods yet Asami is not out of the woods yet yeah so like when he's brought back from his dream Shige is in the background and he finds his dad on the floor and Asami is just like scuttled away. Like she finds something in her suitcase and she just runs and hides. And as Shige is looking at his dad on the floor with his foot missing and like unable to speak, we see Asami enter and behind Shige and she's got this spray pointed right at him. But then his dad is like really pointing, trying to say something. And his, behind you. <laughs> his son turns around and immediately ducks 
as she sprays something on his face. And I think we saw very briefly that she pulled up with the that big-ass needle, uh, whatever agent she used to paralyze Ayoyama and put it into the spray bottle. So I think it's safe to assume she was trying to paralyze Shige as well, but through means of perfume. <laughs> and atomized the... Yeah. <laughs> Breathe it in, bitch! <laughs> So Shige is like super agile, like he just keeps dodging all her little sprays. She's She looks like she's having fun. I don't know. Well, it's like cat and mouse almost. She's like, what the fuck is going on? She's enjoying it. Yeah. So they run up the stairs. Shige is trying to hide his eyes and face and she's just spraying a bunch on his face. And then he just kicks her right in the chest. And there's this like shot of her flying she was down the stairs. Flying, like I yeah. don't think a twelve-year-old could kick a grown-ass woman into the <laughs> air like that. But he could be working out. Like he's—he never misses leg day. <laughs> she just goes flying down the stairs, and we hear this weird cracking sound. And supposedly, her neck is broken because there's a shot of her lying on her back with her neck to the side. It's like pulsating almost. But... Yeah. So we think as viewers of the movie that all is said and done. Shige begins to call the cops and we see through the doorway that Ayoyama, who's still paralyzed on the floor, can actually, like he's in the vicinity of Asami, who is now trying to talk to him. Basically recounting the time that he didn't call her and she kept waiting and waiting she essentially restates the exact monologue from their early dates and in a way it kind of sounds like she's a broken record yeah it, it's like goes into that whole robotic terminator thing you were yeah. talking about yeah <laughs> i think that's yeah. the last thing that she can think of that's the last program that functions it's like he's repeating the warm words that ayama was telling her and that was the gift this little traumatized girl needed and she's like it's almost sad like how she's saying how much all that meant to her like that was probably the most joyous she had felt in her fucked up life and yeah so she calls the cops and the movie basically ends there we don't see explicitly that asami dies we don't see if ayoyama dies we just see shige on the phone and the aftermath of this chaos and then the credits roll and there's this really fun poppy Japanese song plays. It's very jarring. It's loud and like, oh, gay tonal shift. Yeah. It's almost like the director wanted people to forget what he just showed them. But yeah. And now for a word from today's sponsor. <laughs> the only fan. I wonder where you are. Incredible things can happen. If you have a bit more courage, podcasters were not stars right from the beginning. Dan Carlin, Hank Green, even these podcast hosts used to be ordinary listeners. The only fan is living just like you today. The only fan. It could be you, dear listener. Now that we've covered the major plot overview of Audition in terms of movie and book, I think it is warranted having a little bit of a discussion about how the movie and the book differ and, like, I guess, the major changes that were noticed in it. 
at least for me, comparing both, the movie was a fairly solid adaptation of the book. I think the main differences came through mostly towards the end, where the pacing gets a lot faster in the movie, and chronology gets timey-wimey, and we have the confusion and dream state, and um, the more Lynchian aspects. Yeah, the Lynchian aspects of it, whereas the book was a lot more cut and dry. Uh, I also think the movie was more suggestive, while the book was more explicit, specifically in terms of like the sex and the violence. The book lays it out pretty like heavily, but not as like it doesn't feel as evocative as it does in the movie. Right, it doesn't seem as dramatic, but it's more detailed out. It's showing too much of like the monster, I suppose you could say. Yeah, and I think like you had mentioned earlier, Nav, the movie sacrifices like their actual sex scene for the more um, symbolic Asami's, I guess, sexual. Revenge against Ayayama. Yeah, that was uh, one of the things I think that the movie did better, in my opinion. Mm. And I guess that's the strength of the visual medium also. You can right. show, show a lot while the book is very explicit, like you mentioned. Yeah, show, don't tell is actually possible. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think the book more like implies that Asami murdered her stepdad and perhaps others. Um, while Aoyama is probably her first true victim in the movie, it's kind of implied that she's like done this to multiple people, and it's all in like how it's presented. Yeah, as we follow Aoyama in the movie, like piecing together when he goes to the ballet studio and to like the stonefish bar, we're kind of like in his head. In figuring out that she may have maimed slash murdered people. And I think the book is a lot less clear about it. Especially like with the ballet and the stepdad, ballet teacher and the stepdad. Mm -hmm. I think there were hints in the book, but they were way subtler than they were in the movie. For sure. It's sort of shown peripherally through Yoshikawa Right. And and like the weird thing that he sees during the first date where this wheelchair person comes in and he can't speak. Yeah, there's also none of that psychic connection that you were talking about between Asami and Aoyama in the book. Yeah. But maybe that's because it wasn't a visual medium. But I yeah. also think that they took some like directorial liberty making her seem kind of witchy. Yeah. And that she had that like brain control over Aoyama. I also think that you see a lot more of Ayama's attachment and obsession in the book, such as like when she disappears like for a long time mm -hmm. after the sex scene of him just constantly losing weight as he gets more and more depressed as he was Looking earlier. Yeah. yeah, he's just looping over and over again, and he literally cannot think of anything else besides that, and that's the only, like, she's the only thing that's bringing him joy at that point. I think he goes through like three or four months of just moping around right and people are like dude what the fuck but the movie is like a lot quicker to him trying to i'm gonna be the detective you right know? i think it's also like really graphic with ayama's torture in the movie or the book in the movie like really really graphic it's almost like the last 30 minutes of it are just torture nightmare torture nightmare yeah the screen time is dedicated to the brutality yeah whereas in the book it's like Maybe 10 pages? I think it's the last 10 pages. Yeah. And even then that's interspersed with, like, she good coming in and, you know. Yeah. 
Not only is one of his feet cut off, but he also has the needles stuck into his abdomen and his eyes. And I'm pretty sure in the book it's just that she goes after his feet. So the insertion of these acupuncture needles feels a lot more brutal and I think really, like, is what makes this moment her event horizon, at least in my eyes, like... Uh, it's like the the way it's shown also, like, the razor wire is straight before cutting and after she cuts it, it's, like, coiled. Mm-hmm. Like a subtle detail that's, like, makes your How skin... How tight it went, yeah. Yeah, sort of skin crawly. I feel like that's where the director really took the book and made it sort of this cult thing, this kind of legendary thing. Right, like the most fucked up movie is what a lot of people say about it. Yeah, the book, I, I kind of found it a bit too straightforward, a bit too bland. Whereas the movie sort of, even the way the psychological and the psychic connection is shown is like done really well for me maybe i'm just desensitized but i didn't find it like the most fucked up movie ever (laughs) but yeah i mean i watched it like 15 years ago or something and at that point my level of reference was like the exorcist or the shining you know like western movies that have a lot of intense psychological thriller elements but the actual bluntness of the violence isn't shown that blatantly yeah like directors at least maybe say 15 years ago kind of beat around the bush a little bit shy away from more graphic elements yeah and it might be because there were some kind of gore codes in place like i i I just remember like being a kid and thinking yeah r-rated movies are high up there but there's also x-rated movies which are like the worst of them like you're not allowed to watch them anywhere (laughs) right and then there are ones that are never even released which, True. which incidentally, Takashi Miike has done an episode of a TV show called Masters of Horror. And that's his episode is the only one that didn't air. Oh, really? Because it was too graphic? It was too weird and intense. <laughs> Take the Lynchian gore stuff up a notch. Yeah. And you can find copies of it on Internet Archive, I think. Yeah, didn't you say that's where you had watched it? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I thought you yeah. did. Okay. Actually, I found Audition on Internet Archive, too. But... Oh, really? <laughs> Someone's been taking advantage of Internet Archive as, like, a pirating medium. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by Internet Archive. JK. But if you ever want to. Movie has also sort of reached a legendary status amongst, like, American directors, like Tarantino and um, mm-hmm. Eli Roth. And it's sort of jump-started that torture porn genre of movies like Saw and Hostel. You know, that makes perfect sense, especially because Audition was, like, the one to set the precedence and Hostel and Saw came out in, like, the early 2000s kind of thing. I feel like they not necessarily took it up a notch, but, like, because, I guess, of their Western influence, the pacing is way different than Audition, but you can obviously see that's where they draw the inspiration from. Yeah. You know, gotta use a saw on a bathroom floor to cut your leg off kind of thing. Hmm. You never know. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like the thing with those movies is like, always make sure that you put something in the doorway so the door doesn't close, but I guess that wouldn't have helped Aoyama, so he was in a different situation up front. Mm-hmm. Do you guys want to get into some of the thematic elements of this movie and slash book? Yeah, sure. 
Um, I think one that was kind of like prevalent that I noticed a lot was that Ayoama was like constantly bitching about like the new generation or like the, the kids these days. They don't appreciate classical music. Uh, we don't have any cultured women. Or he would also like. Or if we do, they're hard to find, and I have to do a radio advert to get them. Yes, he has to do an audition to get them. Also, that like he kind of references a lot of old world Japan and like kind of like a very glamorous kind of uh, rose colored glasses, and he just like constantly does that throughout like the entire um, novel. And I wonder if it's also kind of a dig at like Asami since she is closer in age to uh she gay then like she is to him but how would it be a dig at her because the new generation she'd be part of the newer generation and maybe so it's like a whinging about that as well no idea maybe he's afraid that he couldn't connect to her on the same level even though he was hoping to with her backstory yeah <laughs> yeah it's like a contrast from the modern savvy she gay asami is like half his age like he's coming to terms with this with the 21st century sort of yeah and i think we kind of see that when uh, he's having that heated debate with yoshikawa and yoshikawa's like no you are a foolish old man who fell for a young girl and who left you high and dry like he that's the final point where he actually realizes that he's kind of out of touch i also found it like funny that they think beatles is modern music <laughs> well if the book is set in the 80s now that's a stretch <laughs> it's popping so another theme and motive i also kind of came across was like the work culture and like basically the capitalist greed that was kind of inherent within like the culture um or like at least specifically within ayama's life yeah his, it really influenced his personality yeah mm -hmm. in the book he's like always going to the fancy restaurants Mm -hmm. and like his son even tells him like people think you're a rich person because you go to all these fancy restaurants yeah she get warned like are you sure that this girl actually loves you or does she just love your money and also it almost has like kind of like a grecian slavery kind of system going on with like Rhea just like always being there to be like kind of like the maid for everything um i don't know if it's pronounced Grecian or Grecian. I, I know <laughs> right about feedback. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, that's an aside, but I felt like seeing it from the Western audience sort of point of view, that feels kind of like that. She could also just be the hired housekeeper. I mean, I used to clean people's houses. So. Fair. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair. And like in those countries, it's very common to hire housekeepers. But also, I guess, the element of, like, when we're talking about the subservience, how uh, Aoyama wants, like, a, a wife, basically, to keep the house right, ready and stuff in a way that's kind of, like, the subservience and, like, having to basically be inferior to whoever the patriarch is is, like, a form of slavery in a way. Yeah, kind of, like, tying, like, in those threads together. So maybe not necessarily all the way there, but I can see how it can be both normalized, but also more heavier in the book by like relying on themes mm. i guess also tying in with like the the element of capitalism and workaholism in the book we like you mentioned trin Ayayama is very much like engrossed in work almost like a workaholic and he uses this to obviously get into the fancy restaurants and whatnot but this is really exacerbated after his wife dies whereas there's also that 
um, distinction between the old and the young generation. Instead of, say, like, getting really into work, his son Shige actually handles his mom's death a little bit better by getting really engrossed in his studies and letting his curiosity flourish, be it biology or paleontology in the movie. Ayoyama basically goes, like, more reclusive, focusing on work and further isolating himself in order to cope, whereas it seems like Shige becomes more social, more curious, more willing to learn, and, like, therefore adapts and is the one who survives in the end. Well, what's even crazy is that the whole process of the audition is also, like, made to appear as a work event. Yeah, they're using it as a work front. It's, like, backed by his actual company and his friend who works for the company. Right, so even in this entire situation, they're all still technically like on the clock. <laughs> so yeah, it's like uh, like these days, right? Like you, you can barely go out to date because you're working all the time. True. Yes. Yeah, I bet even a few of his dates with Asami, he was like, "Okay, I'm billing for this." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm seeing a client. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a production meeting with my actress. Thank you. I bet that happens. Oh yeah. If the tax write-offs are a thing. There are many deductions and tax credits available to small businesses in Japan. Deductions are expenses that can be deducted from your income, reducing the tax you must pay. For example, expenses related to your business such as rent, utilities, office supplies, and your hired actor girlfriend thingy are deductible. (laughs) And that is according to SME Japan Business News. Thanks for such fast reporting. I think you already touched on it a little bit, but there's also the mention that Ayama wines and dines Asami at, like, the fanciest must-be-in-the-cool-group-style restaurants because of his tax write-offs. And although she's not after him for wealth, I think in the book it says he's not explicitly wealthy, but he tries to pose himself as such by the working, by the posturing. I mean, we mentioned that he kind of wanted the perfect wife to also show that he was the perfect family. It's all, like, really about the image for Ayama. And I guess as the producer, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I would say so. It also goes back to kind of, like, the themes of, like, the misogyny and feminism and the objectification of, like, this whole process. Uh, He wants, like, you know, in public, someone to be kind of worn as, like, an ornament. And then behind the scenes to, like, you know, clean the household and perform wifely <laughs> duties. So basically just, like, an automaton, basically. Yeah, he gets sort of warns him that he gives up rich man wives and that might misconstrue people. I feel like this is almost like a very scientific aspect of the book. I don't know if that's the right word. And the movie doesn't really go into this that much. It's like that aspect of women being like beetles or like comparing them to fishes and stuff <laughs> or cars. Like making a show to get a mate and then leaving as soon as the seed's been deposited in the female sack or something. I don't know. <laughs> the automaton like... is equated to something that is animate but maybe not like at a human level, I guess. Yeah, it's like the dung beetle making the biggest poop ball attracting a mate and then just leaving. We could see kind of that Ayam almost like wanted to do that because when he recalls that Asami is like, I agree to your proposal, he's like, oh, what? Oh, I was just here to get my rocks off. I think one last element, I guess, about the work culture was I think that the overworking element that 
is like encompassing Ayama's personality reinforced his loneliness, which I think made viewers or readers kind of empathize with him more, especially because like in today we are in 2024. Yeah. Hustle culture still predominates and like post pandemic and stuff. I think a lot of people felt that, Oh, we have to keep working. Oh, but we're further isolated. So even now you can still empathize in a way with this character from the late nineties. It's only intensified as anyone can email you anywhere, anytime. No longer letters. I wish we could go back to letters. I mean, especially for work stuff. <laughs> yes. Then you wouldn't have to deal with it very quickly. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. I guess bringing us into like the themes of misogyny versus feminism in this book, I- I've heard some debate. Is Asami like a feminist hero or is she just a victim of misogyny? From Pop Culture Death Drive, they say, Scene to scene, our villain is an object, a vengeful ghost, a metaphor for the consequences of sexist objectification, or an attempt to condemn empowered sexuality. Which, I think you can kind of see why people would say this about the book and the movie. Asami being objectified constantly compared to fish, beetle, car, then when other people are trying to ascertain where she stands, who she is, what she is, they call her a ghost or an alien or inhuman. Yeah, it's like she doesn't fit into society, so she's smoke and you can't... She's not tactile, Mm -hmm. kind of. Which makes her seem unreal. But that is the way to dehumanize her, I guess. To minify what she has been through and why she is this way. Even 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 if she's like shown as a femme fatale, like a victim of abuse, kind of empathetic, but she doesn't get any character development. Yeah, her arc is meeting Ayama, being heartbroken by him, and like trying to get her resolution by making him pay. Yeah, I, but there's not that much like substance in a way, at least in terms of the movie. I think the book doesn't even give her much substance either. Yeah, she sort of fails the Bechdel test. But I think the Bechdel <laughs> test is bullshit anyways. But I think as a femme fatale murderess, she still has this aspect of being kind of like this force or this idea, like the fear of being alone that's manifested as this like grisly vengeance or like a desperation to be loved. Or an inability to like heal from past traumas. So while she might not be like super in depth, she still kind of like represents like this kind of like dark chaos in a person. Yeah, it's kind of like retribution or revenge for the way the audition itself is handled. Mm, True. Yeah. Especially because when she sees um, Ayama's true colors and, like, who he really is, she learned, like, fully understands, okay, this entire thing was a fucked up ruse that was not only perpetuated by you, but also, like, multiple people. Yeah, it's like, Ayama is made out to be our hero, like, our protagonist, this decent old guy who takes care of his kid and, like, his owns his wife, but then he defrauds a bunch of women with this fake-ass audition and crosses some moral boundaries i don't think it is actually but i i would like to think that as asami is trying to get her revenge she's also trying to get revenge for all of the people in the audition that had their time wasted and that were also manipulated but that's just you know like crock pipe hope (laughs) yeah 
From Pop Culture Death Drive, they also say there's an obvious ugly sexism to this act, that being the audition itself. The deception at the core of this audition is Aoyama's undoing and his dishonest attempt to solve an honest problem of, I gotta get a girlfriend. This deception summons Aoyama's punishment immediately. Yeah, like the movie shows it, like immediately when he hears the Tomorrow's Heroine ad playing, we see this shot of the little mm-hmm. girl manifesting. Yep. In terms of, it's not really a thin, like themes or motifs, but there is a, a distinct pacing and, of course, timeline that differs. But both the book and the movie, I think, maybe this was just a sign of the times, but they are very slow. Like, yeah. the, the first, I think, hour and 15 of the movie is mostly exposition and the act of the audition, and it ramps up towards the end, like the last 30, 45 minutes. And same thing, like you said, with the book now, the last 10 pages are this excruciating Learning. torture scene. But the rest of the book is mostly, like, the long dance between Ayama and Asami. Yeah. And I think it can kind of show, like, like the normalcy of, like, everyday kind of, like, evil and whatnot, and then going to, like, ramping up the extreme and showing the, the exact opposite side with, like, the fast, intense, uh, like, craziness kind of helps, like, set a very interesting mood that you don't find very often with, like, you know, things that kind of go up and down with, like, peaks and valleys instead of, like, kind of, like, a huge ramp. Yeah, it's like uh, when COVID hit, that graph went logarithmic. <laughs> That's how this movie feels like. Yeah, fair. And I think in a way this was kind of done a little bit intentionally to almost persuade the audience to empathize with Ayama's perspective because we follow it for most of that. And we follow his infatuation going, yeah, this kind of makes sense. Oh, this is kind of weird. And then boom, flip it at the end. Yeah, Asami is showing instability, but we also realize the depth of Aoyama's fucked up audition as well. Yeah. Yeah, we get more of the inside aspects of a more mundane, but no less dangerous evil. Yes. Yeah, it's like if you were doing a little white lie, but the person you were saying the white lie to was a psychopathic killer who cuts off your feet. (laughs) Yes. yes. <laughs> She'll take things very seriously. I mean, she takes life seriously. Literally. <laughs> I feel like that's more a white lie kind of attitude in the 90s, but these days mm. it wouldn't fly. And that's why I feel like this movie is kind of works with the pacing. Like, if you, especially like the white if, lie builds and builds slowly until it's irreparable. Yeah. Like a very mundane thing that men around that time used to do, like almost reflexively. Mm. That sort of, for me, gives that slice of life theme to the movie at the beginning, and then it just turns into this nightmare. (laughs) Slice of life to horror. I think also, in a way, like, if you flipped all of this on its head, we could have covered Aoyama as a villain. (laughs) Yeah, we could. There's like, like, Shinge seems to be like the only, like, kind of understandable. Or gang. gang Yeah, gangster, yeah. Gangster's the best. Yeah. Um, I'm still rooting for Kai. I just imagine her as this, like, chain-smoking, lesbian, wise elder figure that's mysterious but cool. Like, I want to hang out with her. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's 
Oh, it's an interesting point. Like, because she's this cool character and you can't have cool women in a patriarchal society. So you have to cut her out of the movie. I guess that sort of made sense for me in my head. Like, yeah, if you take it from that lens, yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, she's she was a cool character, though. Well, do you guys want to sum up the villain's arc and then get into archetype and alignment? Sounds good to me. I think uh, the most obvious thing for, like, Asami's, like, threshold slash trauma is her childhood abuse by her stepfather, or really the people around her. Yeah, it was also her, uh, what, her aunt, or the first person she lived with who, like, put her in cold water and gave her pneumonia, Mm -hmm. like, bashed her head in. I think that's only explicitly stated in the book, but, like, she grew up around a lot of toxic figures that hurt her severely. Yeah. I guess for mentor... It could be her stepfather, because that's where she got the ideas to take the feet afterwards. Yeah. That might be a stretch, though. Yeah, I guess she learned from that that if you don't have feet, you can't run away that fast. (laughs) And, like, for me, the movie didn't really have a lot of uh, a character that felt like a mentor. Yeah. Well, especially because we're not really following Asami for most of it, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, it could be, like, her mom, maybe, because Asami says, like, her negligence sort of helped her in a way. Yeah, so more, like, the the, the lack of mom's care <laughs> raised yeah. her. Yeah. That was messed up, but yeah. In terms of, like, her temptations and motivations... I think some would say it's the vengeance against her abuse, but we don't really learn that until the end. I think it's, like, that misplaced and misconstrued, like, desire for undying loyalty and love because she didn't have any loyalty or love in her youth. So that's been, like, corrupted in a way, but it's what is her driving force. Yeah, she has this, like, unhealthy, almost childlike desire to be the only one, like... I want this. I really, really want it. Mm-hmm. Which kind of like leads to her like death in a way, or like revelation. Death, yeah. When uh, she learns about Ayama's dead wife and basically runs away from it all. Yeah, I kind of felt like that revelation thing was more Ayama's proposal. Well, she did run away from that too, yeah. I think that was the turning point for me. Or like the pre-turning point, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess for rebirth, when she comes back together with Aoyama, I think it would be when they go to the the resort together, when they actually get intimate with each other, and she's asking for, like, trust and validation, but when she's the most cold and actually just ends up, like, noping out of the situation. Yeah. He's like, I don't know, he wants this time to be about her, mm-hmm. kind of kind of hopes that it'll help her find this love that she really wants. Right, and that might be part of, like, a, a the poor mentorship of, like, thinking that you have to, like, please a man or something like that. I don't know. And then, obviously, that goes to her event horizon of torturing Ayuama and, like, severing his feet off. Like, at the least. And killing a dog. Come on, <laughs> the dog didn't do anything. Putting needles in his eyes the true villainous act i guess in a way at the same time like the not only when she does that she's crossing the point of no return in terms of like general ethics morality but also she has crossed 
or Aoyama has crossed this point with her that he cannot return to her good graces and her favor because she knows that he has betrayed her. Like, he loves other people, so they can never be... Even though, like, that's messed up, but, you know, that's their point of no return in terms of a relationship, and then that's how she ends it with him. Extreme codependence that he did not know that he signed up for. <laughs> that's, like, sort of ties to both, like, transformation and event horizon for me, like, the betrayal of Ayama mm. loving other people, like his son. Like, realizing that betrayal kind of acted as a transformation to the event horizon? Yeah. But I guess it doesn't work out as well as she thought it would because her atonement or resolution is basically being kicked down the stairs and dying. Like a pretty brutal death that seems pretty quick. Yeah. Well, in the book, it's like kind of quick, kind of not. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the movie, we don't even know if she actually dies. I think it's safe to assume she probably does, but like she's talking up until the very last minute of the movie. So. Yeah, I like the thing that. Because the director is so twisted that she's left paralyzed. She's left as, like, this person that she tried to make other men into, like, Mm -hmm. wheelchair-bound. Yeah, that'd be, like, some kind of dark irony. Yeah. So I guess that could be a theoretical legacy for her. I think Shige is probably traumatized from seeing all this. Only slightly. Only slightly. And Aoyama, too, if he even made it out of it. It's likely that he's probably paralyzed and blind, but, like, there's no true closure. It's up to audience speculation. Yeah, it's like when uh, his dad, Aoyama, is so excited about getting to getting to show his new girlfriend to his son. Mm. And when, oh. they, when they finally meet... <laughs> God, she's chasing him down with a spray bottle, like, Come here, bitch, let me kill you! And he killed her. <laughs> Oh, that's it's like the opposite of a meat cute. <laughs> it's a dead meat. Ah. <laughs> well, should we talk about maybe some of the archetypes that uh, Asami might fall into? Actually, uh, I didn't hear what you thought Legacy was, Nav. Um, for me, I felt like the movie doesn't really have a legacy. Patriarchy still wins at the end. It still exists in Japan. Like, she's unheard. She's taken as the psychotic mental case. So I feel like there's not really a legacy. It's, like, unheard or silenced because of society. Mm. And then now, I guess, with it being, like, kind of a cult film for being super fucked up in the West, like, it yeah. kind of, the point flies over the heads of viewers, maybe. Yeah, it's it's also really popular in, like relatively progressive societies in the west but in japan it's very unknown you know i felt like i felt that way i don't know if it's changed like i haven't seen a lot of latest legit <laughs> netflix anime series so I don't <laughs> yeah know. you don't have like a manga adaptation of it or yeah yeah villain's archetype right so what do you think that what what kind of archetype do you think that she would fall into would she be a mastermind or something else um i think she f- fell into like the beast archetype like, the beast archetype if i can read out this as it is written the beast archetype is something unleashed or stalking with the intent to kill as the instinctual need to feed 
There's a scene where Ayama gets psychically entranced and calls her when he's been ignoring her for a while. I felt like that's the beast calling him. They have this like... Yeah, that psychic witchcraft kind of you're under his spell thing. Or how everybody talks about her as if she's something inhuman. Yeah, and also like when she manifests during the the radio advertisement. Like she's just waiting for him to call. Just waiting for the right moment to pounce, I guess. Do you think that's something that's inherent in her? Or something that was kind of like put upon her by all these different expectations? I think that it's like probably something more that was put upon her. I mean, I would kind of fall more into the archetype of like her being like disturbed because it's like pretty evident that she has some psychological problems, obviously facing from her childhood abuse, which probably results in some internal personality struggles, especially with like dealing with pain or relationships, um, forming trust. Uh, there's obviously going to be huge issues there. And so I feel like because of her past problems, it results in some of her more extreme actions. Yeah, like you could, I guess, argue that if she had never been tortured as a child, then she wouldn't have that intent to kill or for revenge. So maybe yeah. she, because of her past, she got disturbed and there is a beast that has spurred from her disturbance, essentially. I would say so. I think that's a good analysis on it. Yeah, I agree. I think also, like, from a textbook example, she would be a femme fatale, which is an attractive and seductive woman who will ultimately bring disaster to a man who becomes involved with her. Uh, there's, like, a legit quote about this from Kai at the bar, uh, somewhere around chapter 8, I don't have it exactly. So I think at face value, like, most people would classify Asami as a femme fatale, but I think that's a little bit too cut and dry. She fits the description... And as you were, like, kind of saying, Trin, she is more thematic, so although she doesn't have, like, the full character arc, she's more than just the seductive woman who brings the downfall of man, because at her core, she's just a fucked up child who doesn't know how to cope with her trauma and never was offered an opportunity to heal or be safe or, like, properly loved. All of these archetypes fit into her. Yeah, they all kind of, like, mix, like, really well together. Yeah. Yeah, it could be like she's disturbed and she's turns into this femme fatale who, when betrayed, turns into the beast. Yeah. Almost like a Medusa-like character. <laughs> Actually, that's like pretty accurate. Like You look at Medusa and you turn into stone, and you look at her, she cuts her feet off and you can't walk. <laughs> <laughs> but stretch. also, M Medusa is trying to like protect herself from rapey men, too, so like... Mm. True. Asami is trying to not necessarily protect herself, but I guess protect her inner child who was hurt from being hurt again. Yeah. Also, for funsies, we took uh, the dark factor of personality pretending to be Asami before recording, and yeah. I guess we can leave a link to the image in the doobly-doo. And this was, of course, just estimates that Nav and I had put together about, like, how would Asami answer these questions? Like, oh, if I could be punched in the face and it would mean somebody else gets punched in the face twice, would I do it? <laughs> we were just, you know, uh, spitballing. But uh, she is pretty high on the range of, like, sadistic and egotistical. Uh, very low on spite and greed. We'll, we'll put the picture in the doobly-doo for anyone who wants to see how we thought she might score on the Dark Factor personality test, aka yeah. the evil test. For those that don't know, the Dark Factor is like some new kind of research that's measuring 
dark personality traits. It's kind of like the MTBI, but for like how fucked up you are. Yeah. She got an A. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, yeah, she's like 95% dark. Yeah. Higher on the spectrum than all of us. Yeah. You want to talk alignment and tactics? Sure. All right, so I think based on all of our notes, she's definitely in the evil realm of the alignment chart. Definitely. With the dark factor that high, you can't not be in the evil side of things. Although I think that because of her actions and some some of them can seem like a little bit like far-fetched as like she kind of does them before like actually knowing anything. Like she feels like almost betrayed by Ayama before like actually trying to get down further into like what's going on and whatnot. But she like immediately flips to like feeling betrayed and going into immediate action that I would feel like she'd be more of a chaotic evil. Whereas like she thinks that she's making perfect sense in what her like actions are doing and whatnot. However, she's just, just kind of doing whatever. Huh? Yeah. Anybody else looking at it would be like, whoa, that's like crazy, angry <laughs> ex-girlfriend behavior. It's like a child that like now has like a bone saw. Like, you know, she, she'll basically do whatever like she wants to based off of like her emotions and is like willing to hurt other people to do so without any like regards to rules, laws or anything like that. And often kind of works outside the system. I mean, she had, like, an entire pharmacy, like, in a bag, like, in the book. I don't know where she's getting, like, all these drugs from, but, like, she she is hooked up well. So, yeah, and then, like, at the end of the day, like, killing Ayama doesn't really help anything. No. I mean, it just makes her kind of feel better, which is very, like, chaos goblin energy. I would say, so I I would go with more chaotic evil. But typically with a chaotic evil archetype, they will still consider what's practical, and I think that's where the, like, the disrupted the beast kind of came out, making her less of, like, a practical character, you know? In the end, she, yeah, she has everything organized to do the torture against Aoyama, but it's not necessarily practical. I think... She would be a little bit more of, like, neutral evil because that she's mostly interested in herself. I mean, at least when Nav and I were answering the the dark personality matrix, a lot of the questions we were responding to were, like, agree based on the self-interest aspect of being loved and being the only one who is loved. I mean, with a neutral evil character, they'll do whatever is most prudent to get to their desired destination, no matter who they hurt along the way. And I think that she kind of did that for most of the story like lying to get into the interview then finding the opportune times to talk to Ayama and like gain his trust even though she had been deceitful all with the end goal of being with him until that plan was failed I would kind of think so but I would imagine that if she was more neutral evil then she would have tried to like keep the film part going and more active and alive rather than being into Ayama. Oh, maybe. I feel like that would be more beneficial to, like, her and her, like, career, but instead, like, she has almost, like, this chaotic, like, messiness to it of, uh, like, getting more involved with Ayama and searching out vengeance against him specifically. And also literally getting messy at the end, like, flinging his fucking foot at the window. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I personally feel like it's more lawful evil. Because she is organized. Once the plan is set into motion, she knows exactly what to do, what to poison, 
It's like he has only one rule and if you break it, you're dead. And because of that, one law is broken. In that kind of way, I feel like she's lawful evil. I feel like she didn't super have a master plan up until she found out she was betrayed, though. Like, it was just beloved. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily a master plan. Well, we can all agree. Evil. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> evil. So, speaking of evil, should we talk about all of our evil villains of 2023? Ooh, yeah. As we're recording this, it's the start of a new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Fear. We thought it might be fun to assemble a villains tier list of our past 13, or our past 12, and now our 13th villain. If y'all are down for that. I am very down for this. Are you yeah. down for this? Let's go. Okay, so first I think we should, obviously, for those who don't know what a tier list is, it's a ranking, uh, it's like a, a graph, and you have S being the highest tier, and then alphabetically A through F. So ranking, like, what is the best to the worst kind of thing, but what, I think we need to define what an S tier villain is, like, is it the most evil, the most fucked up, or the most cunning, or like... Make some. What is the differentiator between a villain and a supervillain? Maybe like the trauma left in their wake. Yeah, I guess maybe the like devastation and range of it. So maybe on like the scale of like negative utility. Question though, would that be devastation physically, like lives lost, or devastation mentally, like how fucked up everyone is about it? <laughs> that is a hard one to distinguish. I, I don't I don't know the answer to that one. I feel like it's more the scale of damage you cause. Like if you look at super villains from movies, like what would you consider a super villain? Like I think Mega Man. No. <laughs> <laughs> Probably in the Watchmen series. Ozymandias. Yep. That's a super villain. Yeah, he's got like a super advanced, very thought thought. Like, future sort of all mapped out and everything. Mm. You, like, drop squids on people. Yeah. And I guess because of, like, the the thought-out thing, you can't, like, there's no trying to negotiate with. And I feel like their plans usually work out, and we just have to deal with the aftermath. Fair, yeah. They're so good at villainy, I guess. They're super villainy. Would that make Walpole an S-tier villain, then? Going all the way back to our second episode? The first Prime Minister of England... Vast... Like he didn't leave devastation in his wake like what a typical supervillain would, but he did completely shape economics and uh, governance. Yeah, especially in the early British Empire. I would say for now he can be in the upper range. I maybe an I A-tier? don't know if he's S tier though. Like I think the Sackler family are S tier. I think so because they've left not only like mass devastation in terms of lives lost but also like the branch out of families affected psychologically shaping the industry and how pain is treated i i think i could agree with that so the sackler family is our first s-tier villain so we're basing it i guess off if you think of the sacklers that's what we're defining s-tier with hmm all right F-tier villain, um, initially I was thinking the driver from episode 3 was a pretty low-tier villain. He affected a family, but I thought he was pretty, like, shit at everything he did, other than driving fast, vroom vroom. He did kill a guy in an elevator. 
Yeah. But he was kind of like an anti-villain. Yeah. I also just generally didn't really like it. So maybe I'm biased, but... Yeah, um, I think he's like... Belongs in E or F tier. Okay, I'll put it in the middle for right now. I also think... Dutch from Red Dead Redemption is a fairly low tier villain too. I mean, he was like petty criminal and stuff. And he did basically have sway over a cult. But I don't think that he was like as mass casualty, say, as someone like the Sacklers. Yeah. And maybe it's not fair because he's fictional, but... Yeah, but I would say it's still more of a contained thing. And it was usually within, you know, the realms of the criminal side, the criminal versus police side, instead of like involving civilians that much. And he did have care for his like gang members at first so like he he did have some morals until he went like off his rocker yeah so i guess towards the lower end in terms of like devastation and actual villainous tactics yeah do you think he's like lower than the driver or higher i think higher just in terms of scope of crimes yeah i would say so like the driver killed one guy and like did some petty crimes but Dutch did more. <laughs> yeah. All right. Makes sense. All right. Where will we put the Marquis de Sade? <laughs> D for dick. No, I don't know. <laughs> Not S for Sade, though. <laughs> um, I... Ooh, that's a tricky one, because a lot of his stuff is just fucked up fan fiction, but it still, like, pervades culture today. Yeah, and a lot of, like, the actual stuff he did in real life was pretty sick, too. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. He didn't seem to have like a like as vast of an effect as some of the villains on our list, though. So I would say maybe a B tier. I would think lower than that. All right. At least, especially like thinking about the aftermath of Sod. I think there are. Yeah, he wrote some fucked up shit and did some fucked up shit. But I think humans are taking it in a better light. Like, especially if you think about BDSM and stuff uh, in kink culture, there's a lot more emphasis on enthusiastic consent and like being safe. So I think people took his initial writings and ran with it in a better direction than he was planning on. Yes, yes, absolutely. Or he's like, he sort of failed at his job. Yeah. (laughs) So maybe just leave him in D tier? Yeah. Yeah, I think he fits. D for dick tier. (laughs) Speaking of uh, dick tiers or dictators, what about Paul Pot? This is a real guy who had a very large effect on a large amount of people. I would say that this might be an S-tier villain. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I think more so than a Walpole type, just because there's actual, like, casualty involved by him and, like, wanton disregard for populace and human suffering. And one of the most modern genocides on True. a massive scale. Yeah. And, yeah, like, the country's still recovering from what he caused. Exactly. And, like, one could argue, yeah, the world is still trying to recover from Walpole doing economics and colonization and stuff. But I, I think the, like, amount of lives lost is less. I don't think Walpole ever, like, directly killed anyone. Maybe right. It's hard to tie down to specific lives. Like, yeah. how much does a life really cost? <laughs> well, we know Pol Pot destroyed a country and affected surrounding countries as well. So I think he is warranted in S tier. Totally agree. But maybe someone like Petio, who was just going around... Setting towns on fire. Petio did cause a lot of, 
lost lives. And I think, uh, I think he'd be a little bit higher than someone like Assad, maybe because he was manipulating people by going, Hey, I'll get you out of Nazi occupied France. Don't worry. I'll free you. Psych. I'm murdering you instead. Like that's really fucked up. Yeah. And like putting them into like acid baths and like making like soap and shit out of them. Yeah. And it was on a smaller scale than someone like Paul Pot, but it's still, there were a lot of people that died at his hand. So would you say like a B or like an A? A and A. Yeah, like I, I guess maybe different I, scopes than Walpole, but they did have a pretty big effect on people. Petio was the one with the psych treatments, right? Uh, no, that was Cameron. Oh. Petio was the guy who pretended to be a doctor to smuggle the Jewish people out right. of Nazi occupied France, but was actually just killing them. Yeah, yeah, A tier. But speaking of the doctor, Cameron, I also think he might be A-tier because of how he changed the medical system and also, like, traumatized a bunch of people. For sure. That or maybe B-tier because there weren't as many people who died under his hand, but they were, like, had the lifelong, like, I can't go to the bathroom by myself, I can't be anxiety-free or anything. Yeah, it wasn't quite on the scale of murdering, but almost, like, emotional disabling of people. For like yeah. a lifetime. Yeah. So B tier for Cameron? I would say so. And also it's because there's probably less people or less patients that he had involved. Mm-hmm. Like I think he was more nefarious mentally in a way than Petio. Yes. Because Petio was just so. like, I'll treat you. Cameron was like, I'll treat you. But Cameron was also doing like his own science experiments despite knowing about the Nuremberg Code and like supposedly going against what the Nazis were doing. Right. He was, like, all anti-Nazi until, like, he's like, well, this is some interesting research. <laughs> all right, who's next? Let's see. We have Daniel Plainview. I think he's a pretty, like, mid-tier. Yeah, I would say, like, he's, like, a, maybe, like, a C or a B. I mean... He, he kills one guy explicitly. He kills, kills two guys. bunch of people. Oh, true, yeah. He kills um his, like, fake brother and then... Eli. <laughs> uh, but he also, like, hurts people in his wake. He hurts the environment in his wake, too. And so it's like he left kind of a lasting impact, but also, like, he knew towards the end that he would die as, like, an old god, maybe? I don't know. I don't know about Daniel. He's a tricky one. What do you think, Mav? I'm leaning towards a C tier, maybe, just because, like, I really like this loyal villain. He's, like, one of my favorite once but his impact was very selfish true yeah especially in terms of hw yeah like his villainy was mostly directed towards like very local emotional things yeah interpersonal yeah now here's a question though did he affect more or less people than sod because <laughs> now looking back on sod i feel like Todd may have affected more than Daniel in terms of scope. I mean, if you count the environment, perhaps not. Ah, uh, fair, fair. All right, we'll, we'll keep Daniel playing. I mean, in, in terms of, like, mental acuity, I feel like Daniel was way more intelligent. With it, yeah. 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 Sad was just a creep who wanted to masturbate all day. Yeah, better than poop on me, daddy <laughs> guy. <laughs> But he would have loved two goals, one cup. Oh, he would have been at, he would have been so overjoyed. He would have opened a franchise or something. He should have just lived a few hundred more years, like Saw Donalds or something. <laughs> Speaking of sadistic sex stuff, 
What do you want to place Asami in? That's a good one. That one's also hard because she kills the dog. She may or may not kill a man. She may or may not have killed another man. She has a lower scope, but also, like... The intensity of the... She's pretty intense. I also feel more empathy towards her. So maybe over in dick level? I think maybe E-tier. Yeah, I would say actually E-tier. Like, not saying she's a bad villain, but, like, she she has the smaller scope, and I just feel bad for her. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd agree. I think E-tier makes sense. Now, where would we put Seo? The first villain Seo. we've covered. Aww. He also had a pretty smallish... Well, no, there were serial killings in the district. So, kind of small... Like, I would say a smaller scope than, or around a similar scope as uh, Daniel Plainview's town, but, like, maybe less? Yeah, I would say so. And, like, definitely higher than Dutch because, like, the kind of cult that he was a part of was, like, specifically for murder. And he was a lot more mentally twisted and wanting to mentally twist people, too. So I think, like, more mentally fucked up as well. I don't know. I feel like he'd probably be with Cameron. Yeah, and B-tier. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's pretty much on the level, like, with the psychological manipulation yeah. and breaking people down and reshaping them into... Oh, exactly. When you put it that way, yeah, they're, they'd be buds. Like the little doctor's corner there. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, do we want to talk Jobu or fucking Humbert Humbert? Ooh, Humbert Humbert's also weird. So the impact is very small compared to a lot of people here, but the true like psychological and what it's based around like i feel like he's a higher tier villain especially in terms of the legacy of the novel lolita as it is that's also very fair i don't know where to put this one like my knee-jerk reaction is a tier but i think because of his scope he would be a little bit lower but i don't want to put him in dr corbett either (laughs) i don't know i i personally find humbert humbert to be the most like disturbing in a way like maybe just monkey brain reaction like He's disgusting and horrible. But also a lot of these characters are. Like, Pol Pot is also disgusting and horrible. Maybe yeah. we leave him out of B+. Plus. B+. Plus. <laughs> Good fair. compromise. Yeah. And then we have Jobu, who also I feel for. But she does, her scope is the entire universe. True, yeah, and she does, like, snap out entire universes if she wants. She's just misunderstood. She wants her mom to love her. Yeah, I feel like the movie doesn't really acknowledge the scale of damage that she's caused. Yeah. (laughs) It just kind of brushes it over like, oh, another multiverse snapped out. Oh, well. And and then it makes us like empathize with her with the whole Rakakuni thing. It's, (laughs) It's cute and it's funny. And then the audience loves this multiversal genocidal creature. Yes. So I think she she's That's pretty how high. You. That's her psychological manipulation. Yeah. I, I think she would be kind of high on the villains tier list with that in mind of the multiversal genocidal. I think she's S tier for I think she has to be S tier. At I, least, so we have two real people. We gotta have a fictional S tier villain. So Jobu is our S tier fictional villain. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, Jobu. And also, I think Humbert should go up to A because he was based on, like, a real person. Yeah. Oh, very fair. Inspired by true events, unfortunately. Which, I I do want to cover the guy that Humbert was initially inspired by, but I still need to wait before we talk about another pedophile as a villain because they're really hard to talk about. So that's our rundown. So in S tier, for our real-life villains, 
we have the Sackler family, who spurred the opioid epidemic, and Pol Pot, who started the Cambodian genocide. And then for fictional, we have Jobu Tupaki from Everything Everywhere All at Once, the multidimensional uh, genocidal being. Yes, the spaghetti monster. Then in A tier, we have Robert Walpole. Yes. Yeah. The first prime minister. Of England. Yes. As well as Marcel Hatio. Yes. Who... Another fucked up French doctor. Yes, another fucked up French doctor going around murdering uh, a bunch of people during... Jewish people trying to flee Nazi occupation. Correct. And then our fictional A-tier villain is Humbert Humbert from Lolita. Notorious pedophile, child kidnapper, a horrible human, and murderer. Yes. I almost forgot about that part. Bringing us into B-tier, we have... Donald Ewan Cameron, the man who performed fucked up psychological experiments, pioneering the medical industry, but also damaging a bunch of people. With his fictional counterpart being Seo, the dentist by day, doctor of death by night. Oh, he was an artist. Yes. Who basically breaks down other people and rebuilds them into being psychopathic killers as part of his like fucked up cult family thing yes trying to bring more quote-unquote artists into the world also a cannibal yes also a cannibal yeah and in c tier we have daniel plainview good boy i i like daniel um, he's actually a really interesting character he's a really interesting person but his ruthlessness it tends to take things too far and ends up making him a villain unfortunately Especially with how he treats other people and everyone around him uh, that he should supposedly trust but can't. Yeah, in terms of portrayal, I think that's the most powerful one. Yeah, I mean, that might also just be a testament to Daniel Lewis's acting. Like, he's so strong in that character, and Daniel Plainview feels like a real character. And I think that a lot of, like, people might try and emulate in a way whether they've seen it or not, like, trying to be that strong, stoic oil worker. Like, that image just permeates so deeply in Western culture specifically. But, like, yeah. In D-tier, Dick-tier, we have Lamarckie Desaad, the disgusting, horny man who wrote a bunch of gross smut, but also had some of that inspired by him kidnapping children and doing really perverse sexual acts to non-consenting people. And fleeing a lot, and then being in prison, and then fleeing a lot, and then being in prison, and then fleeing a lot. Oh, that's one thing I forgot about Petio. He also did, like, identity theft. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, I think he went to, like, eight months of doctor school. Uh, didn't Cameron also only go to a few months of doctor <laughs> I school? I think so. Yeah, these old school medical schools are, like, few years short. I bet Sayo had the most, like, training out of anyone. Honestly. In each year, we have Dutch Vanderlyn from Red Dead Redemption. He's on the lamb. This He's guy on was the like all over the place. Just kind of a goofy criminal trying to get his ragtag gang to do stuff like heists and shit and get that money until he like won off his rockers. I got a plan. Now we'll get the money eventually, but. <laughs> He's kind of a con artist too, but he seemed like mildly harmless. Like, eh. I feel like he kind of turns bitter, but he starts off with good intentions. Yeah. And eventually lives long enough to see himself become the villain. At least he has like a character arc. True. Unlike the other one on this list. 
Osami, who doesn't really have a character arc. Yeah, and we just talked about her to death, basically. So you guys should know the Osami story. And if you don't, then what have you been doing this entire episode? Wake up. Good this morning. is not a dream, Vincent Law. Lastly, in our F tier, we have the driver from the movie Drive, who was a getaway driver, kind of chaotic neutral, then kills a guy in an elevator and fucks up a family's life, trying to be the real hero. He's, he has too much main character energy. Yeah. <laughs> Suffers from cool guy syndrome. <laughs> what are we gonna do tomorrow night? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Well... As our host, Nav, the only host, what made you villainous this month? Well, it's been two months, and I think the month before, I did some villainy, but only I can know about what I, I did. I know about this villainy, but I have been sworn to secrecy. Yep, so Trin's the only one who's in the dark about this villainy. Dun, dun, dun. Don't worry, there's not more Anya stickers around the house. Yeah, it's not Anya stickers. I think we ran out of Anya stickers. He still has two to find, though. Okay. <laughs> and last month, I took part in unionizing activities. Unionizing or onionizing? Uh, it's similar, actually. Our <laughs> Discord server is called Onion. Nice. So, you were unionizing in the the company? Yeah, I guess. I mean, like, that could be villainous in the eyes of the company. True, they deserve it. Did you guys strike? No, not yet. Soon know. the producers and the directors will feel it. <laughs> I I hope so. I hope so. I think they, they need to get a reality check, but... Movie business? It's not all glamorous. Well, I got my daughter addicted to drugs. What? Uh, as we mentioned earlier, I have a cat named Kai. Short for Kaiju. You've probably been hearing her throughout this entire episode. Yeah, she's been very squeaky tonight. Before Christmas time, I she's a very thirsty hoe, so I would turn on the sink faucet in the bathroom so she could get some fresh running water. And she got hooked on this fresh running water to the point that any time I would go to the bathroom, be it to brush my teeth or take a fat dump, she would fly up onto the sink and start squeaking at me to turn on the faucet, which got worse because she would drink and drink and drink and... She knows that she can tilt her head to the side to drink a stream of water, but she still goes like full throttle head under, so her fur gets soaked, and then she'll pull back and do the little dog shake and spray water everywhere. Even if you're taking a fat dump at three in the morning, you'll get sprayed with cold water. <laughs> so that's a lot, but luckily I was able to get her a little kitty fountain, so she has her own little baby sink. But she still comes up to the bathroom sink to ask for water, too. So she she's a thirsty hell. Well, I don't think y'all got anything on me. Because I personally locked all my friends inside of a concentration camp. Or as I like to say, focus camp. So I was able to uh, get everyone on board finally with playing D&D and actually getting past the character creation phase. Oh, it t it takes so long. No one, it almost feels like no one ever gets past the character creation phase. <laughs> the number crunching, it can just be like, like the first hour, everyone's excited. By hour two, everyone's like, can we just please go home? I think the automations helped a little bit with it, though. So this is what I mean by focus camp. <laughs> no, actually, I just put them in a concentration camp so that they would have at least some motivation to escape. And I think that they're getting pretty close. 
but we'll see. We'll see if I can throw more villainy at them. <laughs> There's been one successful session, so if we can make it to two, you know you're doing a good job being scary DM. Yes, I I will be your Diablo world. The scary DM that slides into the DMs. <laughs> Well, that about wraps up today's episode. Nav, thank you for being the only fan. Thank you for hosting. Do you have any socials you want to plug? I just have this one really cool website. It's called baddragon.com. Ooh. Go check it out. Love to hear it. That's my plug or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and if you'd like to be part of the World Domination Committee, follow us on whatever interface that you listen to podcast on and leave us a review. Infiltrate the Wired with us at worlddomination.ca. Send some villainous correspondence to us at committee at worlddomination.ca. Throw Twitter to the wind and stalk us on Insta at World Domination Committee. See what shenanigans I'm up to at trend.tech. Yo, you gotta update your blog. I know. It's been under construction forever. Working on it. And proliferate the gay agenda by reading what we do in the closet on top of us. Well, that's all, fuckers! This podcast was brought to you by Bad Baby Productions.